Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Riggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does. He's scored! Oh, what a great And this week our guest is Adrian Duncan. Adrian's an artist, a novelist and a short story writer and uh, his latest book is a collection of short stories called Midfield Dynamo and we'll talk about that later on. Uh, thanks for coming on, Adrian. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Yep, thank you very much for joining us this week. We've got a Match magazine from the 21st of October 1989. All right, so we'll have a wee look at the, the cover first of all. Tony Cascarino and uh, Andy Townsend celebrating uh, a goal for the Republic of Ireland over Northern Ireland, which almost certainly guarantees a place in the finals. Uh, there's a picture of Terry Butcher and Gary Stevens in the Red England away kit, again celebrating after uh, an England uh, victory uh, that sees them go to the World Cup finals 1990. Here we go, England are Italy bound pages two and three. Uh, and there's a Skull Cup final preview. Cover price is 50 pence. Uh, so first thing to ask, Adrian, did you buy like, Match or Shoot around uh, this era when you were young? You know, it's funny. Um, I was, I think I probably had friends or who bought who bought these kind of magazines, but it wasn't until World Cup 90 that I actually started very, very seriously collecting uh, stickers. Right. You might remember the Orbis, uh, um, sort of the big... Um, would you call it the clip folder of the, of, the, of World Cup ninety um, um, tri- trivia and uh, stickers and what have you, and that came out. I think it was it would have been I suppose early nineteen ninety, um, before the actual World Cup itself started and before even the teams in each group were pulled out of the pot. So it was uh, it was all a, a little bit scattergun, but most of the teams that were that were kind of uh, that you could buy in the in the weekly editions uh, had all qualified. So yeah, that that was the one. All right, so on the on the cover there, there's uh, Tony Cascarino and uh, Andy Townsend there um, for uh, Ireland. Any memories of that particular game, Adrian? That was the... uh, yeah, no, I do. I remember. Um, I remember. I remember very very clearly the '88 um, European Championships. I would have been ten at the time, and uh, it would have been obviously our first major competition. And I don't think either of these two players are actually playing the '88 uh, uh, finals. Um, I remember vividly because um, it was the first time I probably went to a pub in, I'm from the middle of Ireland, uh, a place called County Longford. And um, when Ireland were playing England, I think it was the first game of the, of the uh, 88 um, champion, European Championships. This was obviously a very, very big game. And my father um, had said to my mother, we were on holidays over on the west coast of Ireland. And he said that he wanted to go back up to, uh, back up home to um i think it was to do some sort of work or some sort of some sort of made-up story like that <laughs> and i was kind of aware of this and i, I said, can I come up and help you <laughs> um so i remember uh going up to ballymahan my hometown 
um, and we watched the England game. It, this actual jerseys were very similar to the jerseys that are on the top of this the cover of this match magazine here. Um, I actually had one of those jerseys that were gorgeous. And yeah. um, and um, I remember when beforehand Brian Clough was very very sure that England were going to beat Ireland, and I think the general feeling amongst the English press uh, was that we were they were going to roll Ireland over. And I remember Liam Brady, who was I think injured for the '88 uh, European Championships, was working for BBC. And he gave Brian Clough a bit of lip back live on air about how uh, he'd much prefer have Ireland centre half pairings than England. And I remember Ray Houghton, a good Scottish Irish man, uh, scored the goal. I think it was like in the twelfth minute or something like that. And um, oh man, the stress! Like even <laughs> even though it was I was kind of young, like whatever, very it, it, whatever I was about ten, I suppose at the time. I remember that was my first time of that chronic feeling of stress that you have when you're under the cosh. <laughs> For 80 minutes and you really don't want to lose and i remember packy bonner had an absolutely he was playing for celtic at the time and he was having an apps he had an absolutely brilliant game and i remember gary Lineker just could not get the ball past him it was sort of like oliver Kahn in 2002 or something like that you know he was kind of you just couldn't get the ball past him and then at the end uh, we won i remember the absolute elation in the uh, pub and grown men my father's friends like crying and all this kind of stuff <laughs> and i remember Remember when Bobby Robson came out on the screen, God bless him, with a tear in his eye over this horrendous loss. I remember the cheer that went up. Home was completely... <laughs> so it was my, probably my first real experience of um, that kind of football, but particularly soccer adulthood. Um, because where I'm from, Gaelic football is a much, 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 much bigger sport, nat- naturally in the town. Um, and it was really only those competitions in 1988 and 1990 that more and more people in rural Ireland actually started uh, watching more and more football, like as it, when I say football and soccer. Um, like there would have been a period of time, even in the 70s, when I was growing, and in the 80s when I was growing up, when soccer was actually banned from playing. You weren't allowed to play it. Or if you played it, you weren't allowed to play Gaelic football because the Gaelic football, um, the politics of the Gaelic football was so strong and the, the, the sense of an Irish identity was so strong that the Gaelic games were an integral part of it. So there was this sort of weird absence of soccer, formal soccer, let's say, formal football in, in the Midlands and in certain parts of rural Ireland. And so these, these games and these people, particularly uh, Cascarino and Townsend and these kinds of uh, folk, these dynamic uh, and interesting and actually English-born footballers playing for Ireland, it was a, real, it was a really sort of exciting and strange um, sort of, sort of strange thing to get your head around even at that young age, you know. But yeah, brilliant, brilliant times. Very, very, very brilliant times. Yeah, Jack, Jack Charlton, of course, is at the helm at the time. Yeah, so I'll have a wee look at that as we get more on that Ireland game in, inside. Uh, so uh, there's not very much going on in, in the front cover. Usually front covers of the magazines, there's, there's a lot going on, but there's really not very much uh, here at all. Uh, anything, Andy, you want to pick out of that cover? I just want to point out that it says... You know, we said there's a photograph of Gary Stevens there. I mean, it's barely a photograph of Gary Stevens, isn't it? It's the back of his head as he's um, been cuddled by Terry Butcher there. Um, and what what other prices have we got? We've got Singapore two dollars seventy five, Spain two hundred pesetas, HFL. What did we work out that was before? Was that in Netherlands? Oh, the Hungarian florian. Could it be florian, something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that sounds about right. The Deutsche Mark three fifty. 
uh, and you know it's seventy seven pounds. It's, it's always pound. it's always more expensive, <laughs> isn't it? Always yeah, more expensive. That. But, that's long gone. The Irish punt, yeah, Jesus, yeah. that's gone. That's gone since whatever. Was it two thousand and one or two when the Euro came in oh, yeah. throughout Europe? That's that's when that was gone. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, yeah, as you say, yeah, there's a lack of things on the front end. But you know, you don't need it when you've got a big, a big um, color photograph of the the Irish celebrating. That's that's yes, good enough is. for me. All right, so we, we turn uh, turn over at the magazine then. So, so the first pages two and three. It's uh, Italy. Here we come. Uh, and this is England, so this is a big picture of Peter Shilton there in a sort of um, blue goalkeeper's jersey, a blue sort of zigzag shadow stripe goalkeeper's jersey, and a wee insert there uh, of Bobby Charlton, classic picture of Bobby Charlton, uh, but we must improve Warren's Charlton. I love, I love how they couldn't find a colour photograph of him. <laughs> had, to, had to go with black and white. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like it's just to just to sort of overemphasize the point that this guy's from the past. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll not not dwell too long on uh, on England qualifying for the nineteen ninety World Cup there. But um, I don't know anything you want to pick out, Agent, uh, from from those in two- the England the England bits. Uh, let me see. Well, I know just one thing that caught caught, caught my eye there. Is the lovely three-tone Italian IT football the sort of the screen print thing mm. that was the um, what would you call it? it was kind of the um, the, the, the 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 logo or whatever yeah. sort of thing that that when I saw that the first time there when you sent me over the mag um, or the scan I was like oh Jesus I haven't seen that for a long long time and like I remember like those colours as well like the reds white and green and I remember after Italian IT they started showing that Italian football on RT two. Mm. In uh, in Ireland, I actually think it predated it coming out on Channel Four. Right, yeah, like, I think I think we actually had it for a season or two before, and I remember just being utterly mesmerised at the utter difference of the game compared to the English game at the time that, that I would have been watching more often, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just interesting to be things picture of Peter Shilton and his goal. I was just going to point out behind it's an advert for Farah, Farah <laughs> <laughs> <of> trousers. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I actually used to. I don't know. I used to own a pair then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I mean, this this whole page isn't doing much for for fashion, is it? Whether it's Bobby no, at the top no, no. or um, that sort of Harlequin type goalkeeper thing that's going on. Yeah, not the greatest of periods, I have to say. No, no. Uh, no, it's uh, just doing the side there. How we got there, and it's a list of uh, the England's uh, qualifying. Results oh, to get through. I don't know, there's a couple of nil-nil draws in there, and England three, Poland nil, England five, Albania nil. Typical sort of English group where they just kind of walk it. <laughs> and they barely lost a goal. Yeah, all the, yeah. Way, all the way through that. A lot of nil alls though. Mm-hmm. I mean, they drew at Sweden twice nil all, and they drew at Poland once nil all. Well, I mean, that seemed that certainly went through into the World Cup itself, didn't it? The yeah, that, that just seemed to maybe be that time where. Games were pretty tight and not many goals being scored in the international level. Mm-hmm. It looks like it looks like against in the final game or the second last game against Poland that Pierce was playing centre half with Walker, mm. um, and that Butcher maybe Butcher or actually but yeah Butcher would have been playing left back I presume then would he? Or maybe Pierce was playing left back that game and Butcher was centre half with Walker. Jeez, that must have been a very young Des Walker then playing that. No? Yeah, he must have been Nottingham Forest at the time. Yeah, oh, and David Rollcastle as well. Jeez, I mean the midfield when you look at it: Robson, McMahon, Rollcastle, Beardsley, 
like Waddle. Jesus, it's a pretty good midfield, isn't it? Yeah. I uh, the talent through the squad at that time. Yeah, yeah. Didn't say. yeah it's a robust team yeah. now. Like you forget how good Beardsley was. He was astonishing. Um such a talented player. I remember I saw him once in Dublin Airport and I was really amazed. Actually, he's quite stocky, but he was small enough. I thought he'd be I, I don't know, I hadn't pictured it as being a bit bigger, but uh yeah, he was, that, that, that was a, that's a tremendous midfield. David Ocastle, he was uh, playing for Man, for Arsenal at the time, wasn't he? He yeah. was a really, really important player for them. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was just I was just noticing. I was I was looking for for you know considering <laughs> how how the the World Cup went. I was just looking for Gascoigne, and it looks as though he's came on a sub a few of the games and not, not oh, a regular yeah, at that point. That's true. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks like a fringe player during the uh, during yeah. the, during the actual um, the qualifications. He scored a goal against Albania anyway, that's for sure. And it says here, Gaza gets his name on the score sheet with a cracker on his debut. Uh, Two minutes to go. So you are the Albania game was his debut back in 1989. So, uh, wow. All right, well, we go over the page then. Here we go. It's uh, here we go. So this is a a colour special, colour photograph special of the Republic of Ireland beating Northern Ireland 3-0. Uh, and the qualifier that sealed their place, uh, Italia 1990. Uh, so, so this game was uh, kicked off at one o'clock at Lansdowne, Lansdowne Road because uh, Lansdowne Road didn't have floodlights at, at the time. Uh, actually, I watched this whole game's on YouTube. I watched it uh, the other day there. Wow, Jeepers, though. No, we were, I mean, at that time, I mean, what because the um, Northern Ireland had gone to, to the 86 World Cup. And they've been, or no, to the 82 World Cup. And yeah. they were in the 86 World Cup as well. Yeah, yeah, remarkable run. But they didn't make the 88 uh, European Championships. Um, and I think there was a sort of, there was a feeling between, because the North, obviously, by qualifying for these major championships, there was a sort of feeling of superiority, obviously, in the North compared to the South of Ireland. And once Jack took over then in 87, he was so much more wily than the previous Irish managers. And I say Johnny Giles was probably a very good Irish manager and Owen Hand was good as well. But they didn't have the kind of international smarts that Jack Charlton seemed to bring, or that kind of pragmatic view of how to just win games against international teams. Um, And you could feel around this time that there was a sort of a a power shift, as it were, between the North and the South. And we we probably just had a few more better players. You know, like John Aldridge was playing brilliantly for Liverpool at the time. Ray Houghton was playing for Liverpool at the time. Ronnie Whelan was playing for Liverpool at the time. I think Kevin Moran was still with Manchester United. And Paul McGrath was still playing probably for Manchester United as well. So, like, if you can, like, if I liken the sort of talent that was in that team now to what we have now, we don't have one player other than Cuevin Keller in the sort of top half of the English Premiership. And that's, yeah, I mean, he's not even playing regularly. So, like, that, that the sort of the players that Jack Parkley brought in through the man, through the grandmother and grandfather rule, but also, um, just it was just his time. There was loads of really, really good players. And, um, in the Irish team, right the way from from goals all the way up to the, up to up front, um, and I think the emergence of people like Cascarino and Niall Quinn, they came into the team because of Jack, Jack Charlton's style, this kind of thing of get it forward as quickly as possible and look to look for a knock on in their last third, and then tr- if you want to play, play in there, but uh, otherwise, um, you know, there's 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 no playing out from midfield, and I think that's why Liam Brady was eventually kind of given the heave ho because he was such a beautiful footballer um, and but he wasn't he wasn't Jack, Jack Charlton's style of footballer at all um, and by now he was kind of gotten rid of nearly by by, by Jack Charlton but I mean it, the thing about it is it was like it was really really exciting but then there were 
loads and loads and loads of deeply, deeply boring games as well <laughs> for, for, for an Ireland fan. At this time, it was just so exciting because we had never won this many games before. We'd never qualified for anything before either. Um, so, yeah, uh, this game was played in, in Lansdowne Road. I remember I used to go to Lansdowne Road as well an awful lot when I was younger. Now, I probably would have been in my would have been the mid-90s before I would have actually gone to Lansdowne Road. We used to play in Dalymount Park, Ireland, before that, uh, which was a small park up on the north side. But it's one of those old kind of stadia where you could fish, you know, 35,000 people standing or maybe even 40 or 50 people standing but it wouldn't have been safe in the post Heisel and post uh, in that in that kind of world so Lansdowne Road was a, a, the old rugby stadium essentially and um, it was a very very old school stadium and when you were there if you were in the I think it was the um, yeah the east stand um, there was a railway running um, directly underneath the actual stand itself so every whatever 10 minutes you can feel one of the they're called the dart line and the dart line would go underneath and you could feel it like shuddering up through you up up, up through the seats and it was like having you know like there was some sort of commotion going on further down the stand um but the atmosphere in this place was absolutely unbelievable it's way better than the aviva stadium the atmosphere here was brilliant yeah it was a brilliant stadium to go to um and sometimes because they used to play rugby on it the pitch wouldn't be great and of course if the likes of Spain or a really nice football team were coming. Jack wouldn't make any efforts to make the pitch less bobbly, you know. So it was a pretty, there was a, it was a pretty agricultural feel to it sometimes. But it, I mean, as he himself, you know, people, a lot of people didn't like watching us, but most people playing us hated playing us, and that was the sort of key to him, you know. That was that was the approach he took. Um, so yeah, that's the, so that's that. No, so then that that just left us with Malta to play. Yeah. Um, and then that was us through. And I think we always fancy our chances against Malta because they were even, even though we got beaten 5 2 with them when Steve Staunton was in charge. Um, but back in the day before that, you know, we, there would have definitely would have, would have been a team that we would have seen as, um, you know, beatable um, from our point of view. Yeah. So there would have been like a real confidence about going through after this game. Just have we look at uh, that Ireland team. So it was uh, Packy Bonner, Chris Morris, Steve Staunton, uh, Mick McCarthy, who was a captain, Kevin Morn. Ronnie Whelan, Andy Townsend, Ray Houghton, John Aldridge, Tony Cascarino, Kevin Sheedy, and David O'Leary came on as a sub. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I remember Kevin Sheedy, um, he was playing for Everton, I think, at the time, and um, he had an absolute wand of a left boot. Um, He was actually over-managing more recently in Ireland in the Irish League. He was with Watford United, but I think he's left since. Um, But I remember he scored a goal against England, in the uh, in the World Cup in 1990, we were drawn with them again uh, in the in the group stages. And I remember, I think it was Gary Lineker scored early in the game, yeah. and then about five or ten or fifteen minutes from the end, um, Steve McMahon took an awful touch on the edge of the box and poured out to uh, Kevin she- uh, Kevin Sheedy, and he hammered it with his left foot back into the into the left of Shilton. I remember it was one of the first times that I went absolutely berserk on a goal going in, you know, even more so. It would have been even, you know, two years more meaningful than, say, the European Championships. And even at that age, you were sort of aware of a sort of anti-English sentiment <laughs> going through your what it meant to be an Ireland supporter, you know. So beating England was sort of, a, it was a very, very big deal. I remember running around the house about five or six times when that happened. Uh, yeah, he's he was a brilliant, brilliant player. I mean, like that. That's that's like a really, really that's a really good team. I think Chris Morris was playing for Celtic at the time. Yeah, he was, yeah. And I think um what's his name? I think Mick McCarthy was possibly playing for Celtic at the time. Yeah, and he'd be Leon actually at that point. Leon, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Packy Bonner was he was playing with Celtic at the time. Yeah. 
time, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I remember Chris, I mean, I've completely lost. Usually I look into the sort of past, the histories of these, all of these footballers. I'm really fascinated in, in, t- in terms of how and what happened or where they went. And I never looked into what Chris Morris is doing. I have no idea what he's kind of up to these days. But uh, he was a really tidy footballer himself at the time. Um, and he would have played in a way that Jack definitely would have wanted his fullbacks playing, you know, um, like get when the ball comes to them, getting it back up to pitch. And ne- n- none of this dropping deep to take it off the goalkeeper, any of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's funny because this is before, this was the last World Cup before the back pass rule came in. Because I think I remember at the end of World Cup 90, there was a sort of concern bringing a game of this kind over to the US might not be uh, sort of flowing or exciting enough. And there were a lot of instances in the in that World Cup 90 where, I mean, uh, where there was like just the ball being kicked back to the keeper, picking it up, bouncing it, you know, it killed the game a lot. Mm. I remember against when we played Holland, both of us were through in the last 10 minutes of that game. So it was just the two keepers kicking up and down to each other. And like, it was kind of, for anyone, any neutral looking on, would just be like, this is an awful game of football. For us, it was obviously brilliant. But uh but I remember that um, Packy Bonner was particularly good at, at kicking the ball out of his hands. And I think that was partly because he would have played a lot of Gaelic football as a young fella up in, <laughs> up in Donegal. And that's obviously part and parcel of how it's like a basic pass in, in Gaelic football, kicking it out of your hands. But um, I often think sometimes of what Packy Bonner would be like now as a goalkeeper these days, if you just plucked him out of the past and put him into yeah. the present. Uh, that kind of idea of grimacing and booting a ball 60 yards up a, up a pitch would just be, it would be like something from a different century, you know. But um, well, of course it is from a different century. But I remember there was a goalkeeper that I used to know in, uh, in my hometown. It's a guy called Lal Donlan. And he had done, he played for Longford Town when he was younger. Um, but he said that... Uh, he had also done about, he'd been with Arsenal for about a year. Uh, he's a particularly good golfer. And my, my old lad used to golf, play golf, and I used to caddy for him. And I just found this Lal fella really, really interesting. He was an older man at the time. But I remember one time he told me that he'd gone over for trials to Arsenal. And he just, the way he described his game, it was, I was good at coming out, catching the ball over the heads of five or six fellas and kicking it as far down the pitch as I could. <laughs> And like that to him were the skills of the of the goalkeeper. And I think I think like that was still the case up until more or less up until or there were the metrics into of well you'd measure a goalkeeper's value up until that back pass rule came in. And then I think it's only really now that the game is called properly with that back pass rule in, in the UK and Ireland and parts of Europe, back pass rule has has, has such a huge effect on the game, you know. Mm-hmm. You wonder, you wonder why, what suddenly changed that we start playing. I, I know that's because you can pass inside the box from a a goal kick, and that seems to have been the catalyst for the style of play from the back. You mm. know, really, really short play from the back, and you just wonder why teams weren't doing it before to that degree. And maybe it was is because players have developed enough that that they have this skill. You know that they can they can take the ball in under pressure and pass it about from there, but it's just it's, it, sometimes I, I find it really strange just thinking about how the game develops and how new things happen. You think, well, nothing else can change the way the game pl- is played, and then suddenly something happens and it's changed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think definitely one of the things that would have that, that the back pass rule would have been, I think, just the way goalkeepers would have been because you know the way like you know the. Like it's such a Victorian game, football in many ways, or at least it was, and that everyone's got their kind of role and they're sort of orchestrated to produce a sort of, uh, 
you know, it's like a, if you, it's like a sort of factory floor where everyone's got a different skill, you know, a left, a left back has got a slightly different skill, skill set to say a striker, you know, a striker's good at putting the ball in the net, getting his head on it or whatever it is. And I just think it, part of it is that it's just people have different roles, you know, mm. it's almost like a sort of unionized work or something like that. That is like, you do that. And I think, I think that's why, that's why I think goalkeepers, it was so, cause I remember when that rule came in, there was a couple of years of like almost comedic football when the ball was being rolled back to the goalkeeper. And it was just, Jimmer, they were just trying to get a foot on it to get it clear because the pitches would have been bobbly around the goal mouth and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. And it was just such a gamble, sort of rolling the ball back to the keeper for him to sort of play it out or anything like that. But yeah, it is. It's really interesting to see those patterns and how they, the developments in the game. It's, I think it's absolutely fascinating, you know, because it sort of reflects the world, the changes in the world to a certain degree as well, you know. So, and just same with Ireland for a moment, you, you touched on it briefly there, uh, Adrian, that uh, this Irish team at the moment is not going through a particularly good spell. Any sort of thoughts on why that why that might be? Um, yeah, oh God, it's a strange one. I think, I mean, the first and foremost, like in the last few games, since Stephen Kenny took over, um, apart from the, the trials and tribulations with COVID and all that kind of stuff, um, but a lot of first team players that we have that that you know, like the the best players, let's say, who are playing for the for the more um, for the clubs nearer to the top, a lot of them aren't actually playing week in week out. So they're in this sort of there'll be a good few of them that were in this sort of uh, in between zone of not being in the reserves and not being in the first team. So they're actually on the bench every most weekends, and it just. Then when you come back to start playing for Ireland, you're just not, you might be fit, but you're not match fit. Mm. Like I remember, for instance, Callum Robinson, who during the last uh, Ireland, during the last international break, in the first game he came back and played, he looked exhausted after about 30 minutes. And I think then he he got, Stephen Kenny gave him three games. And then when he went back to West Brom at the end of getting a bit of uh, a few, a bit of some game time, he started banging them in left, right and centre for West Brom. Like he's a very good player, I think, Callum Robinson. But he's just not getting, he wasn't at the time getting first team football. Now he has since. And I think that's a big part of it, that a lot of the players that would make up Stephen Kenny's ideal first 11 aren't actually playing week in, week out. Like Jeff Hendrick could be another one. He's in Newcastle. He hasn't started, I don't think, for four months. Robbie Brady, the same. Um, like there's just, uh, Seamus Coleman, who's probably our best player. You know, he's not even on, he, he's not even on the, on the first team every single week, even though he probably should um, and it's just if you through the whole team, there's just so few of them that are actually playing first team at a high level regularly. And I think also the style of football is Stephen Kenny's style of football is really, really different to what the style of football that Ireland has played over the last, say, um, even last decade. So if you could think back to maybe Trapattoni to now. So the thing was that because Ireland, the FAI, were, were being have you read Champagne Football, the book that came out last year about John Delaney's reign of the FAI? It's absolutely horrible. It's a brilliant book, but it's a it's a kind of a, a it's a really difficult read because of the teeming um, level of waste and uh, misspending of money. And I think an awful lot of it was that because of the development of the of the new stadium led to a sort of um, a lack of funds for the FAI generally that we had to qualify for World Cups and European Championships because of the financial windfall, the, the chunk of money that would come in and kept the, the FA going. I think it led to a very, very pragmatic series of managers being taken on. It's like, your job is to get the plot to that tournament. By, I don't care how you do it, just do it. 
And it led to basically a decade of really horrible, horrible football to watch from as from a supporter's point of view. And I remember, like, say, for instance, when Trapattoni got us to the European Championships, I think it was 2012. I remember watching the three group games and it was Oh, it was so embarrassing. It was, we got absolutely hockeyed in every single one of them. I remember my, my dad said to me after the three games, and we were kicked out of the tournament, absolutely didn't lay a paw on anyone. Um, my, my dad said, we wouldn't have done, done any worse if we tried to play football. And he was right. And, but, but it was ingrained in the team, to, like that was Trapattoni's method. And the FAI knew what they were doing taking on someone like Trapattoni, it was going to be, it wasn't going to be trying to instill a style or a, an identity of football. And that has happened since with success. We've qualified, but it's corporate qualifications. It's not, it's not qualifications with a view to producing a type of football that you might associate, that might associate with football that's even good, but even with Ireland or whatever, it doesn't, there's no, it's just what'll get us there, you know? And I think Stephen Kenny, he can be pragmatic when he wants, but, he definitely has an attitude towards playing um, attractive football. Um, like when I was younger, I played very, very briefly for Longford Town back in the early 2000s. I played, when I, when I say I played, I trained with the first team and played with the reserves. Um, but I got one run out for the first team in, uh, actually in, in, uh, in 2000, 2000, yeah. And I was playing against a small club called Home Farm. It was a League Cup game or something like that. I came on as a halftime sub. And we were 2-0 down. And the person who scored the two goals for Home Farm was a young 17-year-old lad who was on loan from Shelburne. And his name was Richie Foran. And he ended up having a brilliant career over in Scotland. He ended up managing Inverness, Caledonia Thistle as well for a while. Um, but he was absolutely unbelievable. He was like a man running around the place. He was only 17. Um, but I remember Stephen Kenny, when he was managing Longford Town, he had a real interest in the aesthetics of and what you looked like when you played. So he wasn't just interested in winning, but like what you look like, what the, what 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 like what you actually, uh, what your the, the the jersey and your and your shorts like what did that look good, you know? And then the idea of having expressive players was really important to him. And like he'd always ask lads, you know, because it was all semi-professional football for for most of the players there. He'd be asking them, you know, what would you like to do? And I remember one fella said in the dressing room, they'd like to be a hairdresser. And this, and this was this is sort of comment that might be met with derision. But Steve was just like, that's great, yeah, go and do that. Yeah, that sounds like that's a brilliant thing to do. So he was just sort of surprising in that way, but he also had a sort of a really, really keen and competitive spirit as well. And that's why he's got so far as a manager. Like he's he was over, I thought he did, I thought he was quite unlucky in Dunfermline when he was over for that season. He got into a cup final. And they just fell short of the um, of staying up in the in the in the Premier Division or the uh, the, the top division, um, and then I think he was gone after a couple of months the next season. But then he did brilliantly with Dundalk in Europe, and I remember when he when Dundalk made the European um, the 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 group stages, which was about maybe three or four years ago. And now Dundalk were nowhere before this; they were way down the lower end of the division. Um, but when he got them into the Europa League and into the group stages, which is the first time an Irish club has ever done this, instead of just parking 11 at the back, he said, no, we're going to go out and play them as if as if we were going to win, as if we are going to show them what we're like. And they actually won a game, which I think they beat a Polish side, which this is unheard of, playing a team by playing them off the park. That has never been done by an Irish club before in Europe, or very, very rarely anyway. And so that's always been his attitude, that we will bring our creativity to them. Um, and I think that's what he's trying to do with the Ireland team now. And I think it's very different to what some of the older players are used to. 
Um, and I think it's the sort of thing that takes a while to blend in. You need time with the players to do it. And he hasn't had any of that. Um, it's been very fractured. And some of the players he doesn't know and some of the players he does know. And it's just it's just been um, not an ideal situation from the start. But I do have hope in him, at least. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we turn over the page then and we see just, how, how but, Scotland got Before on. we go, I just want to have a wee oh. chat about the photographs. So it's oh, yeah. very, very colourful photographs. And the thing that springs out to me, so the Republic are in green shirts, white sh- shorts and green socks. And Northern Ireland are in white sh- shirts, mm-hmm. green shorts and white socks. That, that wouldn't happen these days. I mean, how good does it look? In these yeah, days, yeah. in these yeah. days, you wouldn't get that because they would say that's a clash. Mm-hmm. So I, I have no idea what blue or something would Northern Ireland be wearing. Might be actually, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it could well be that. And, I think that is their third yeah. colour, yeah. And I just think you know, so much is you know, aesthetically is missed from the game now because of things like that. You mentioned also about the pitch. The pitch looks absolutely perfect. I mean, then again, <laughs> then again, I mean, it, it may be um, hiding a few like a few um, bumps and stuff in there. But yeah, overall, um, the thing I always go and Tom, Tom will tell you about this. The thing I always go on about is older, and we're talking about older than this, maybe seventies um, to early eighties. What I love about the photos is the blurriness of them. I don't yeah. like. I, I just think they're so much better than these high definition, crystal clear photos. Yeah. And, there's a bit of both with this. I think the, the, the foreground's a bit sharper, but the background's blurry, and I think it still yeah. works. And I, I just think yeah. they're really good photographs, and I didn't want to go away with it, just commenting on that. Yeah, I remember there's a friend of mine, actually, who um, he's a photographer himself. He used to work uh, for newspapers. He's gone into film now. But he was a young fella. <clears throat> he used to work as a sort of an assistant for the Irish Times. And when they were taking photographs at, say, the Isle of Ireland or, say, games like this, be the photographer there knocking out the reels of photographs you know hoping that one of them would work um and he my mate fergal human the photographer would give him whatever 10 or 15 rolls of photographs and fergal had cycled down the irish Times, uh, photography department where they develop all of the photo all of the contact sheets and then they'd, have, they'd be able to hopefully pick one out and go yeah we actually we definitely have one front page image or whatever but sometimes you used to have to go up and down a few times to the game to get the rolls off the thing so was this a to produce these photographs there's a huge amount of actual yeah. effort that is completely gone now like because it's just you take on a photograph on a phone or you take it on a camera you can email it immediately you know yeah. um but yeah it is lovely the film the film photography is gorgeous yeah for yeah. sure and also the way the the text is overlaid you can see it, it's been cut out and kind of overlaid and scanned like you can see the um See the bit Aero almost certainly booked their ticket to the World Cup. You can see that's obviously been stuck on at some stage by someone. Yeah, um, yeah I love that. Ah, it's just really, it's just lovely the way it's done. Yeah, I, w- I would say though. I mean, sometimes it. I mean, when it says how they stand, and I think that's a. T- you can't read that. You can't read <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, it's it's white, the a white text over the crowd, and yeah, it just yeah, you yeah. know it just doesn't work. They could have done what they did in the other ones and had a a bit of a, a background to that as well. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Jack's tweed jacket. Yeah. He's really getting into the uh, the. There must be some sort of Donegal tweed he's wearing there. Now, you know? <laughs> uh, so we go over the page then. Left hand side, we've got no panic Scotland. So uh, Scotland lost three nothing to France, uh, and we needed a result against Norway. And uh, 
picture of Dennis Law, and again, much like Bobby Charlton picture, it's a picture of Dennis <laughs> Law from like de- decades earlier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a footballing legend and veteran of 54 Scotland appearances, and Dennis Law actually got 55 caps for Scotland. Uh, no. believes that the final <laughs> defeat in France has merely delayed his country's progress to the World Cup finals. Let's face it, if you can't get a result against Norway, you don't deserve to go. My God. Uh, so we did, we did, we we drew one each uh, with Norway, and that was that was a, that was enough. Ali McCoy scored, and uh, Erland Jonsson equalised with a with a minute left to leave us sort of holding holding on desperately for uh, a couple of minutes. But yeah, uh, we did we did get there. A great Scotland jersey that one as well. Yeah, when McCoy's wearing there, oh, yeah, cracker. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Because I went to college up in Aberdeen. That's where I studied engineering from 1995 to 99. And uh, there's a guy I knew called Steve McCulloch. He was from Aberdeen, actually. I remember we, uh, I think I bought one of his Scotland jersey off or something like that. He was really good, really good footballer himself. I think he's an accountant now or something. But uh, yeah, I had one of those jerseys. I think I, I think I have that jersey down at home in my parents' house. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and probably my top three. It's got the little bit of tartan on the collar and the inside yeah. bit as well. And the, those pop buttons yeah 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 exactly yeah. The, the celtic jerseys had those pop buttons as well the cr mm-hmm. smith ones i remember i had one of those as well yeah and uh, with the little pop buttons yeah and if i remember yeah, right it was it was a really soft comfortable material on it as well i always remember mm-hmm. that um, yeah definitely brilliant brilliant strip uh just to just to uh, note there for that uh, scotland france game uh it says that the game was over when cantona took advantage in 62 minutes <laughs> Yeah. Jesus, funny here. There's mention also of um, Gordon Stra- Strachan playing his first game for Scotland for nine months, and since his transfer to Leeds United. So that's obviously when he sh- when he went on to Leeds, and he must have stayed there until he became player manager. Then, yeah, yeah. Wow. What What I found interesting looking at the 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 Irish group was, I mean, Ireland had a terrible start, didn't they? I mean, the the first three games they drew two and lost yeah. one. Yeah, and then yeah. they won every game after that, and it was. Yeah, I guess you know must have just built up the momentum from that point. Yeah, and I think like if you drawing a game wasn't such a big disaster back then because it was one one point yeah. for a draw and two for a win. Um, because I was looking at this documentary recently. It was the it's called the Road to the USA, and it was the it was ninety three, late nineteen ninety three. It was mm. uh, Jack Charlton bringing Ireland to the ninety four World Cup. And it's shot again. You'd love this because it was all shot on 60 millimeter film. Like you wouldn't see the like of it nowadays, you know. Mm. But um, again, I had forgotten, completely forgotten about that um, two point for a win and how kind of inconsequential it seems. If you like, you get a draw, it was by far, that was getting a result, you know. Whereas getting a draw now, it's like, like unless the team is way, way better than you, it's not really seen as, as, as much of a result as a, as a win, you know. Yeah. Do you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it's made that much a difference if I'm you know, in terms of where things end up. Because I think I, I remember looking at, um, yeah, I, I had nothing to do one night. So I looked at previous league titles and stuff like that and I worked out, would any of them have changed if it was still two points for a win? Or if it was three points for a win and one ah, back I then? See, yeah. And I think out of everything, there was one situation where it would have been a different winner. Every oh, other well, one was yeah. the same. So I think in terms of you know, playing for something, it, it, maybe lower down it becomes more important than it is when, you know, teams are actually winning more than they're drawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see also uh, Scotland had 
of Yugoslavia in the, in the group. So this is obviously just a couple of years before Yugoslavia broke broke mm. up. But that would have been an extra, extraordinary Yugoslavian team then with Prozinecki and uh, Savicevic and all these kinds of players, Mihailovic and all that, you know, the Bel- Red Star Belgrade team. Mm. Um, well, we're, actually, we're actually just going to, we're going to look at the Yugoslavia team later on. Um, oh, cool. Okay. Because uh, I was going to look at your short story. So ah, I asked okay. you okay. something with Prozinecki in it. So there's a, there's a Yugoslavia team profile we're going to have a look at later on. Okay, cool, so great. All those all those guys that you're, you're talking about, uh, we'll get there in a few pages time. <laughs> uh, so on the opposite page, we've got apparently a full page picture of Steve Staunton of Liverpool. Which, which <laughs> do we, are we are we know who it is? It's a fellow called Burroughs, isn't it? Is David Burroughs, yeah. Burroughs, wasn't it? David Burroughs. What was his first? David Burroughs, that's yeah. it, yeah. I mean, their colouring is similar. They're both blondes. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's it, really. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very generous to the picture editor. But do, do you know, the, the thing about this is, and I've went on, because a lot of my collection, I've got the magazines, but I also collect cards and stickers and stuff, which I collected when I was younger. And my, my bugbear about things like this is... You know, mistakes are going to happen, but as a kid, you don't know the mistakes. <laughs> so you grow up, you, you would grow up thinking, if you didn't know any better, you grew up thinking that's Steve Staunton. I mean, there, there's a 1977 set of Scottish football cards where there's two Hearts players. One is Cammy Fraser and the other is Sandy Burrow, Sandy Burrell, Burrow. And they're actually the same person in the photograph. And <laughs> I, I just thought they looked similar. But when it's pointed out to you, it's obviously the same person. It's probably from the same photo shoot as well. And it's wow. just things like that that, you know, as you get older, you get a wee bit sort of really annoyed about having the, the wheel pulled over your eyes as a kid. <laughs> it was funny because with the World Cup 90 um, manual, a lot of the stickers in it, they weren't like formalized like Panini, where obviously someone from Panini went out and photographed all of the squad properly, just from shoulder up or from say waist up or whatever. But in the World Cup '90 poster or collecting stickers that I collected, um, they were just photographs that were all over the place. They were obviously taken from just like uh, you know news you know, Reuters or whatever and places like that, and just used. So you had yeah. a whole different host of styles of photographs. I remember that being kind of annoying to me at the time because right. I think it was a little bit more more obsessive, uh, like kind of obsessive compulsive when you're when you're younger about these things. You kind of I I'm not I wouldn't don't know if I get so annoyed about it now. But when I was younger, that kind of sticking out. Mm. See, um, <laughs> see I, I sort of prefer that I prefer that than just a formulaic um, standard. I mean, nowadays the the Panini ones, it's like you could basically have a body and just keep changing the head, and it's the same. <laughs> Same sticker, but um, yeah, if, yeah. If, I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was either a sticker or a card. I'm sure the guy didn't even have a football strip on. I'm sure he just had his his normal, like a, a jumper on or something. Like <laughs> and it's, they didn't even make the effort to do their, their painting, which they did quite a lot. You know, if somebody had moved clubs and they didn't have time to take a new photograph, they would just paint over the kit. And and you know, again, us unassuming kids would just think, oh, that's that's a new kit for this season or something like that, you know, <laughs> day glow orange or something. But um, yeah, I'm I, I I much preferred when it was all different. You know, you get action shots and you get um ones like that. But um, yeah, there we go. That's my OCD. <laughs> uh, so we move on pages uh, pages eight and nine. 
so on page eight there at the bottom, there's a sort of competition thing that says, are you a match for Schiltz? Uh, this is week two of the great quiz competition to find 50 people to face England goalkeeper in a match penalty shootout at the baseball ground in the new year. Uh, so the thing is, you've got to phone in and Peter Shilton asks you questions. Yeah, you've got to score against Shilton by uh, answering the questions correctly. The calls cost 38 pence per minute at peak times and 25 pence per minute at all other times. And you must ask your parents' permission. <laughs> Two minutes twenty seconds each call was going to last as well. And how much was the front? The front cover was fifty. I, I keep equating it to what what a magazine costs. So two minutes twenty seconds is what? I mean, clo close to a pound. So you're talking about two magazines worth just to have a chance to. What do you win? Uh, it's a chance to take penalties at the baseball grounds. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that sounds that's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> We're just uh, looking at so there's a picture of Nernie's he's Derby County uh, Football Club, and I just noticed there that, that um, uh, Maxwell uh, is a sponsor. I see on, on the page opposite there's yeah. the uh, the Diodorus uh, boots. Um, I remember uh, Roy Keane was sponsored by Diodora as well when he was in his pomp and uh. I remember going down and playing, we were playing, Longford Town were playing against Cove Rambler, which was a Roy Keane's old club. And uh, his, oh, I think his older brother, I can't remember his name, is it John or Morris maybe or something like that? And uh, he was wearing Theodore boots as well. <laughs> I can imagine Roy had sent over a few pairs to the brother for, for the season. <laughs> really not bad, the, the, hmm. the Theodore boots there on uh, John Barnes. Oh, they're lovely, yeah. It was around that time, actually, that other boots, because I remember there was like, you know, Umbro, Ida, Puma were kind of your, 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 your you know, usuals. But then in the 90s, again, maybe it was after this World Cup 90, that things like Diodora, and I remember Lotto coming in. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Root Hullet used, and I think Van Basten used to wear Lotto boots. And I remember I got a pair of Lotto boots, and I still remember them. They were by far the nicest boots that I've ever had. And uh, I used to take such care of them uh, after every game, again, playing Gaelic football. Uh, I'd bring them home and clean them and then um, I'd sort of I know in, in in this is a difference that I found later but I used to put Vaseline on them to keep the leather soft whereas when I moved to Scotland in 95 I realised it was to clean the boots and put then put dubbin on them mm. a totally different form of care for their boots and it was totally new to me because in, in Gaelic football um, the, the sort of traditions isn't of clean your boots like like in uh, soccer. So all this really, really new time I moved to Scotland and I started playing for the university in Aberdeen uh, and seeing all these fellas coming in with these absolutely immaculate boots and the smell of Dublin going through the, yeah. the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the changing room. But yeah, that's the um, Diodora's, yeah, very, very nice boot. Vaseline's yeah. a, a new one in me, but I, I can I can appreciate that because I always remember, <laughs> especially if you had Adidas boots or something with white, and if you went to it with a dubbing, you'd start off, you'd try not to get any of the dubbing on the white bit. But, you know, after a couple of weeks, you would just go over the whole thing with a dubbing and then, yeah. you know, you'd have grey instead of white stripes on it. So the Vaseline, I guess, would would cater for that. Maybe not clean it as much, but... Yeah, it would... Like, the thing is, I think part of the reason it was because the... See, Gaelic football pitches, when we were younger, the grass is much longer. Mm. And... um 
So that the actual it was actually exceptionally wet at times. So you wouldn't necessarily get like the full pitch surface outside of like the really high end games. The surface would be that perfect. It wouldn't be as perfect as a as a soccer pitch. Um, so actually, the foot Gaelic football boots. A lot of fellas would wear rugby boots sometimes playing hmm. Gaelic football because it was just more suited, you know. Um, so I think that's partly the reason. But then Dublin just people just didn't use Dublin. That was a total no one used it um, yeah. when I was growing up. It was a totally new substance to me in relation <laughs> to football boots when I saw it. Which is <laughs> gas. Such a such a cultural difference, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd say maybe fellas Dublin, you know, who might have been on trial in England, or you know, some fellas who might have been over in the UK on trial come back with these sort of habits but there was no one in my hometown that would have been back on any trial from from an english league um so it was just yeah you just did what you thought was the best thing to do so lean is probably a very strange thing to do <laughs> yeah yeah I, I must say if you walked into changing rooms with a, a vasa you know a jar of vaseline um, <laughs> unless unless jim layton's in there who used to put it above his eyes to, to stop the right, sweat yeah, coming down. Uh, if you have a look at it, the prices there, they're, they're not cheap. Uh, the Zenga boots are seventy nine ninety nine, CRD ninety Pro are eighty nine ninety nine. Jesus, yeah. that's you know that's his nineteen eighty nine. So, I mean that, that that's about the last time I bought a pair of coppers. That's roughly what they might have been about, maybe a little bit more expensive. And that's not taking into account inflation and everything else. I mean that is that is a lot of money. Yeah, well, well, the, the facing page they're saying ask your parents' permission if, before phoning this number, and then that page there it's yeah. eighty pounds for a pair of football boots. It's crazy. I mean, I see, the names of the football boots are brilliant. Uh, Zenga, Europa, Van Basten. I don't know what Scato is. Maybe that Italian player at the time, and then Barnes Stormer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I looked online and you can buy a 1992 pair of uh, Van Basten Theodora boots uh, as new for $109.99. Uh, there is a warning that says, due to the age of these boots, we cannot recommend use. We advise they be, ke be kept as collector's pieces. <laughs> uh, next, we go over, over the page then. Inside story. So secret playoff plans. And uh, this is about changes being made to the uh, English League playoffs. Uh, Trevor Phillips, League's commercial director, proposed that all three playoffs be played over one weekend at Wembley. Uh, previously, they'd been two-legged ties with a neutral venue third game if they ended in a tie. And uh, it was the next season they brought that in, and that's obviously that's a, the playoff format that, that we know now, um, with them with them uh, playing. Uh, all three, all three games is on that sort of bank holiday weekend uh, at Wembley. I think it's it's one of the things that England have definitely done really well is the playoffs. It's it's just added so much excitement and uh, you know interest to the game. So uh, you know, take my hat off to them. Uh, and there's a wee bit there. It says uh, Williamson's warning. This is Bobby Williamson of Rotherham United telling the third division defences, I'm playing badly at the moment, but just you wait until I get better. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Adrian, so um, Andy and I are both Clay Bank supporters, and, and Bobby Williamson was one of the first um, strikers that we would have that we would have seen uh, playing with Clay Bank. Um, it was um, Bobby Williamson and Tommy Coyne. Tommy Coyne. Tommy Coyne. <laughs> for Clay Bank when Andy and I first started going wow. to school. Well, uh, Tommy Coyne. Tom, Tommy Coyne was some. He played. He was played for Ireland in the World Cup '94. Yeah. I remember uh, 
in the Italian game, or maybe it was the Mexican game, I can't remember. Chapman had them, you know, the front striker was always chasing down the front two. Like, not dissimilar to the way which Klopp would, or, would organise his front three now. Only Jack Charlton had just one, or maybe two. And I remember Tommy Coyne, he played an absolutely incredible game for Ireland. Uh, I think it was against Mexico. And he played, he ran so hard that he lost, I think, about um, half a kilo of weight. And he had to be sort of hooked up intravenously to a hydrator straight after the game. Um, he'd kind of they just give much to it. Yeah, he was a brilliant player for Ireland, uh, Tommy Coyne. Yeah, geez. what's he? Where's he these days? I wonder. I'm not. I'm not sure. I know he's uh, his son's a player. His son plays for uh, Linlithgow. His son's a, a striker. So okay. I've seen him at the odd game, the odd Linlithgow game. Um, okay. So Linlithgow are a sort of non non league team, but his son's a pretty good, decent striker for that mm. for that for that level. Uh, so I have seen him at the odd the odd game when his son's been playing. But I couldn't tell you if he was in, if he's still involved in football. Yeah. So, Andy, so, do you do you know? I don't. I was just going to tell you my Bobby Williams story, Williamson story, which you've heard a hundred times. But um, the Clydebank <laughs> game at the warm up, Bobby and Tommy Coyne were, were hitting the ball into an empty net. So I jumped onto the field just as one of them hit it, and I saved it. And the language, the language, they absolutely tore into me, tell me to get mm. off and everything. I was a wee boy, and I was like, oh, I just wanted to save it. So, <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I, I still loved them. I still loved them. <laughs> Go over the page again, unless there's something that anybody spotted. On the left-hand side here, we've got when match day comes, and this is a wee fanzine focus. So, it's a wee focus on a Hibs fanzine. Uh, and the Hearts fanzine, so no idle talk. The Hearts fanzine. Uh, would, would you have got fanzines at any point, uh, Agent? No, no. I mean, it's like the only real clubs that might have produced fanzines would have been in Dublin, and um, they would have been, yeah, like maybe, yeah, you might have got a fanzine maybe for maybe St. Pat's or Shelburne or maybe Bohemians or something like that. But down the closest club to me, there was two clubs and they were usually always in the first division with the second, which is the lower division, uh, Athlone Town and Longford Town. Sligo Rovers a little further on, but I never went to a game there. And then there was Galway United and Limerick City uh, as well. Um, but I don't think any of those would have been producing fanzines. You see, the, the thing about soccer in parts of Ireland, the population isn't that big, but there's three other competing games. So Gaelic football takes a huge amount of, not just players, but also um, supporters towards us. Same with hurling and same with, um, I suppose to a smaller degree, rugby. So soccer would be, would have been up until the 80, late 80s and 90s, definitely the third, maybe even the fourth most popular game in Ireland hmm. in terms of players and supporters, numbers of, of supporters. So there just wouldn't have been a sort of... Um, a culture or a sort of uh, a, a kind of an, an organised, large enough organisation of people to produce something like a fanzine uh, at that time. So that kind of stuff, no, it didn't really happen. The only time, the only thing, thing you get of that kind of stuff um, would be sort of uh, match uh, match programmes um, at games. And they could be very simple things up until, you know, until you get into the actual upper division, the Premier Division. They'd be very, very simple things, you know, but then they'd be a little bit more complicated after that. And they'd look more like, say, a program you might get in the UK or in Scotland uh, before a game, you know. Um, but also, there was 
the, the government, there wouldn't have been a huge amount of money put into the FAI local, the, the Irish League, the FAI League um, at that time either, you know. And even still, a lot of the, the stand, the grounds are very, very substandard and some of the facilities are very substandard. It's just, yeah, there just wouldn't be as, enough, as, as much money or the sort of crowds, even that you get, like, you know, even in a first division team in Scotland, if you've got a, you know, you could have 10, 12, 13, 14,000 people at a game, you know, a big game. You wouldn't get the colour of that. You might get that in the FAI Cup final, you know. So it's just a total difference in terms of scale in that regard. So sadly, uh, no, because it's, lo- it's lovely. It, these are great, these fans. So, uh, yeah, so no, no idle talk, the uh, Hearts fanzine, and there's a Hibs Monthly uh, fanzine. I noticed that the editor of Hibs Monthly was Colin Leslie. Uh, Colin Leslie went on to be the sports editor for the Scotsman, and he's written oh. a couple of books. He wrote a book on uh, Eric Shadler. Uh, the Hibson Dundee player, and he's written a biography of Jim Holton, I think, uh, the Manchester United player. Uh, Andy, any thoughts on those two fanzines? Well, firstly, that they've got them around the wrong way, haven't they? Yeah, that's how it's kind of sort of confusing slightly. Which, um, when it comes to Hearts and Hibs, you know, you don't want to mess up, you don't want to mix up these things when it comes to, um, you know, rivals like this. So the the Colin Leslie is, is he the the Jim Holton Twitter account is does he yeah yeah right, yeah okay. that's Colin Leslie yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so the facing page there uh, is interesting it's it's an advert for a film but I think this is the first time looking at any of these football magazines that we've seen an advert for a film which oh. I thought was interesting is maybe I don't know they're looking at a different attracting a different demographic or they realise that their demographic's kind of uh, kind of changed but this is the first time I've seen a, a movie advert. Certainly, from from my experience, I mean, I can think of ones off the top of my head. The Terminator Two, I think there was a Star Trek the Motion Picture, so that was definitely um, a lot mm. earlier than this. Um, so it's maybe we've just not been picking ones, but I think because there is another one in this as well, wasn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, th- I think maybe you're right. Maybe that you know they're just um, looking a bit more at this area for advertising, uh, but there certainly have been ones before um but but not to this this number so this is an advert for millennium uh, millennium a 1989 science fiction film directed by michael anderson and starring chris christopherson cheryl ladd and uh, daniel <laughs> j travanti uh you, yeah. you remember Hill street blues yeah, yeah. Um, frank ferrello wow it scores 11 percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> a quote from somebody on rotten tomatoes uh, says uh, millennium plays out much like someone trying to drunkenly explain the plot of a doctor who episode they haven't seen in several years they must have been selling a lot of copies of this uh of this of match to justify you know, a big production company putting an advert into the middle of it. Yeah, Jesus. Anyway. Although it is only black, it is a black and white advert, so I don't know if it particularly sells the... Yeah, no. element of it, I don't know if you get no. uh, All right, so we go over, over the page. So this is a set of kids, but DJ Match, DJ Beard Match Club. So this is a kind of thing for, for kids, I think. Uh in the middle there, there's uh, George Paul Trevelyan uh, joins a George Best, uh, and there's a little picture there of DJ Bear and roustabout editor Mick Robertson, who uh, people of a certain age will remember Mick Robertson from presenting Magpie. Yeah. Oh. 
kids kids TV series on uh, on ITV. Any any thoughts on uh, on these two pages? Uh, the the Trevelyan drawings are just they're things that just are etched into your youth, aren't they? They're just so amazing. They're beautiful photograph, beautiful drawings at best as well. Like they're gorgeous. Hmm. Yeah, we're we're big fans of Paul on here, and we, we, we uh, chat about yeah. him quite a bit. So yeah, definitely yeah. big fans. The the panda's parable at the bottom there. I don't know if you read that. So the, the panda um, with John Motson, is it? <laughs> um, it says, when I was in Poland, John Motson asked me what I'd do if a wild bear was to suddenly spring out. I would put on my running shoes, says the panda. John Motson says, you couldn't outrun a, D- a bear, DJ. And the bear says, I wouldn't have to. I'd only have to outrun you. Now this reminds <laughs> me of the Billy Conley Serengeti joke. You remember that one? It's, it's the, the photographers in the Serengeti and he's putting on his shoes, his Nike shoes, and it's the exact same joke. Although I think Billy told it better than either Panda, Parable, or myself. Uh, all right, so we move on then from, yep. uh, from the DJ Bear pages. So we're going to the uh, match facts. So uh, this, these are the sort of comprehensive results uh, pull out that we've got. So uh, we can have a wee look at some of the some of the results. Uh, so it starts off with um, the UEFA Under Twenty One Championships. Uh, England to beat Poland three one. Uh, Brightwell and Bull Steve Bull scoring uh, scoring twice. Scotland Under Twenty One's lost three one to France. And I presume uh, is that uh, Marcel Desailly that they've yeah. got there that scored the first goal. Yeah, and also they misspelled, but um, yeah, it's him and Ian Wilson. Scoring Wilson. for Scotland. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so and then there's some uh, some of those World Cup uh, results as well. Uh, so they, they name the, the teams and they describe the goals as well. Uh, so how they do this here, and uh, there's uh, match ratings as well, and player ratings when we go on to the the uh, Premier League. Any results? Anybody's seen? There anything interesting that's popped out? Uh, yeah. Well, I used to follow Man United when I was a young fella, right. um, which was a bad time to be a United fan, to be found yeah. during the 80s, particularly when all of your other friends were Liverpool fans, mm-hmm. um, just getting absolutely pilloried all the time. But I remember I was a huge fan of Brian McClare. Uh, I thought he was a really, really fantastic footballer, even though it was a sort of slightly unpopular uh Kind of, it was like who, <laughs> um, but I thought he was a tremendous yeah. footballer of time. And it's funny actually, there was an interview recently. I heard saw um, uh, Alex Ferguson being interviewed by I think it was Gary Neville, and uh, one of the questions was, "Who are the three most underrated footballers that you worked with?" And um, Ferguson immediately said uh, McLare was one of them. Um, he obviously rated him very highly as a player through because he had him for a good decade, you know. Or yeah. geez, he must have at least had him for a decade. Um, but he's a, he was a, he was a, he was a kind of. I actually had a Man United jersey with McLare on the back of it, and I would not say there were too many young lads in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> jersey on the back. <laughs> but anyway, the the drew nil all of Sheffield Wednesday. I see, and yeah. no one got points. Well, I mean, Robson got eight points, but the rest of them seemed to have a, a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> Uh, so I noticed uh, Mark McGee scored the win- a late winner for Newcastle won Bradford nil. Mark McGee uh, scored the winner in injury time. But it's interesting to note, match referee Philip Wright had played one minute, 15 seconds of injury time when McGee ran 50 yards, beat four men and slotted the ball in. But number one, that doesn't really sound like the Mark McGee that I remember 
uh, watching. And it's also it's interesting to note that the, the, the point out that the referee had paid, played just over a minute of, of added on time. It's, it's, it's funny he say, say that. So looking at the Scotland's qualification, so this was the, the, the year that Scotland beat Cyprus 3-2 with that late mm-hmm. 95th and a, yeah, 95 yeah. and a half minute. And, then, off. Yeah, and there was riots afterwards from the fans <laughs> and stuff because yeah, and th- nowadays, you know, it was mentioned that, that at that time, five and a half minutes was, was was you know unheard of, um. But nowadays, it, it you know it wouldn't be that much of a problem if a team played well for for one half of the team anyway. No, no, no doubt. But um, yeah, it's just different days again. And as you say, the mentioning the fact that there was what, a minute and fifteen seconds. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if we we sort of zoom on to the end of the match facts, just a couple of wee things I was going to pack out of there. So I mean, the season's only a few only a few months old at this point, but they they pick out uh, wee things like lowest attendance, most goals in a game, fastest goals. Uh, Division 3, Rainer of Swansea, 45 seconds. Division 4, Brocky of Doncaster, 10 minutes. <laughs> in that division, and uh, most goals in a game. Division two, there's two matches that have had, that have had three goals for most oh, goals man. in a game. It, it is only October, so there's only been a couple of months, but still, <laughs> still pretty low. <laughs> yeah, well, and, uh, I mean, in, you, sorry, just in Division four, they they've played ten games each as well, pretty yeah. much. That's incredible. That is. Ten minutes. Yeah, and if you notice, uh, Saturday star men, and so it gives you uh, in, Div- in Division One uh, who the best players, uh, who the best players are, what their match rating was. If you notice, Aston Villa Mountfield six and uh, Luton Priest six. That was Aston Villa Luton game, and so those were both the two star men, and they'd only scored six. Everybody else has got a four or a five. You think six is a basic? You basically just turned up, and you'll get a six. <laughs> Yeah, Perry Gross for Arsenal got a nine. Mm. Remember Perry Gross? He's like this kind of cult figure of Arsenal fans now. Um, and Sheringham was playing for Millwall there. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Trevor Francis QPR that would have been. Yeah, uh, would have been. Yeah. 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 Rodney Wallace, uh, Paul mm. Gascoigne there. Yeah. yeah. Tottenham yeah. nine. Yeah. Anything else anybody's picked out from any of from any of that of these uh, stats? I mean, and and these days, this is where you got your uh, your, your juicy information yeah. on teams and players and all that kind of stuff. Because obviously, that would you would be pulling over that for hours mm. uh, when you yeah. bought that magazine. Yeah, it's funny actually the way like, and I still do this. Like I, my my part of my interaction, like a very large part of my interaction with football is tabular. You know, it's by looking at the tables and pouring through these figures and numbers and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's, I find that really, like I do it every weekend at least uh, after all of the games or after all of the weekend games are over. And I see, you know, where the shifts have been, that kind of stuff. And it's such a strange habit to do because it's such a, like a, it's like a, it's like a statisticians, uh, it's like it's like it's like these magazines were sort of de- developing a generation of st- statisticians uh, <laughs> to kind of try and make sense of the chaos that happened the week before. <laughs> so it is like it's kind of fascinating the fact that it is that the that 
this form is, holds such drama and uh, it holds the attention of young people still. I don't know, do people who are like eight or nine still look at tables who are into football? Mm-hmm. Do they still look at tables with this, with the kind of intensity that we would have looked at them when we were younger? I don't know, do they? I, I, guess, I guess it would be live tables that they look at, wouldn't yeah. Some sort of things like that. But the thing, the, you talked about tables there, and the thing I've noticed, and I've only noticed it relatively recently, is they've started putting with the points first. In the table, and it's like, no, 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 the points go at the end. It's played, one drawn, lost, for, against, and you have a bonus is if you split it up home and away. You know, and it's yeah. like, well, well, I, I don't get why they think that they need to change that. It's a tried and tre- tested method, and it works, so yeah. just leave it alone. On the opposite page there, Battle of the Giants, so this has been a little woods cup. I don't know, Fandy, did you bother to look up uh, these matches to see if uh, match predictions came true. I, I, I know, I, I know that normally it would be my thing, but I didn't. On this I one. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's just a picture there of uh, Michael Thomas saying we'll we'll show them it's no fluke. Uh, <laughs> so Arsenal um, is hoping to retain the Little Woods Cup, but uh, ah, nice, nice uh, Arsenal kit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice Arsenal kit, yeah. Yeah, the lovely, the Gunners, uh, the Gunners, Gunners Insignia is really nice in that one. That was a lovely catch, yeah. All right, Andy. Okay, Adrian, we're going to jump out of the magazine for a, a little bit here, and we're going to do a Focus On. Now, I know Focus On was a shoot um, thing, but um, it's basically going to hit you with a lot of questions, and if you just give <laughs> us your answers. Uh, so we'll start off, full name. As in my full name, Adrian Finton Duncan. Okay. <laughs> What's your birthplace? I was born in County Galway, which is the west coast of Ireland. Right. What was your first car? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, I think a, a Fiat One Two Six was. <laughs> okay. Do you remember the colour? <laughs> I think it was the yeah. <laughs> I don't. I haven't owned one since. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who, who's your favourite player of all time? Oh, of all time. Um, yeah, I. Funny because was, uh, I think Zinedine Zidane is actually my favourite of all time. Even though I don't think he's actually put into the absolute Pele Maradona league. Mm. But yeah, he'd be more. He'd be my favorite player of all. I thought he's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Who's your favorite team? Outside of national teams, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, then uh, uh, I follow Man United. I've followed them since I was five. Yeah. Okay. What's the most memorable match? Uh, yeah, I'd say. I would say. Oh God, that is a tough one. Yeah, I'd say the time we drew one all with Germany in the Cup of 2000 when Robbie Keane scored in the last minute against uh, Germany. It's a flick on from Niall Quinn. And uh, Oliver Kahn had been unbeaten and remained unbeaten until the final, until Ronaldo put two past him. And Robbie Keane snuck one past him in, I don't know, the last two or three minutes. I nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. that was amazing. Yeah. Nice <laughs> what's been your biggest thrill it, does, it, it can be in anything so it doesn't have to be football uh, biggest thrill, biggest thrill. Jeez, that's a tough question 
Do you know it was actually very nice? Last year I won a book prize for my first novel. Uh, and it was the John McGahern Book Prize. It's through the University of Liverpool. And because uh, I'm, I'm pretty new to the world in terms of my, my first book came out in 2019. And that was my, my debut novel. And it was, yeah, it was a real thrill for it. Yeah. So that was that was very nice, actually. Yeah. Okay. yeah. That was and quite recent as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's the best country you've visited? The best country? Yep. Um, do you know, I made it to Bilbao up in the northwest, the Basque region up in Spain two years ago. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful place. Such a strange language as well. Not that I understood what, 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 what was being said in either Spanish or Basque. Yeah. And, but that was amazing. And what was really amazing was that Spain were playing in the World Cup during that day. And I thought to myself, God, what they'll do. And they all had their um, Atletico Bilbao jerseys on. And... They didn't cheer when Spain won. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, fascinating place. Spain and not Spain, you know? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> and what's your favourite food? Um, well, I may as well stay in Bilbao. Um, those little pinchos, the little tapas, little um, fish <laughs> tapas and little kind of vegetarian tapas with a um, nice little glass of red wine. <laughs> nice, nice, okay. That's really good over there. Yeah. Miscellaneous like, so give me two things that you like doing. Uh, do you know actually I've started doing it again recently uh, just going out to a nearby park here and doing keepy uppies for about 40 minutes hitting the ball hitting the ball hitting the ball, hitting the ball again into a goal for about 45 minutes I love doing that in ages haven't played football in ages but I love doing that it's absolutely wonderful yeah. um, and then the other thing I like doing uh, well actually I really like writing I like my job as a writer <laughs> just as well eh? Okay, uh, miscellaneous, well. <laughs> miscellaneous dislikes. So give me two things that drive you up the wall. Uh, oh, um, try buying a flight on a Ryanair website. <laughs> Just tension. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, God. Um, that, that I really don't like doing. Uh, um, but it has to be done. And then the other thing I don't really like doing, um, um, I'd say, Jesus, maybe I'm overthinking this. Um <laughs> Um, bu- 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 yeah, like, um, I, yeah, do my tax, it's just horrible, you know. Tax, okay. Um, <laughs> favorite TV show of all time, of all time. Oh, wow, that's a good one. Um, do you know, uh, I have to say, just for over the years, all of the like the Alan Partridge, all of the Alan Partridge stuff, but the couple he did the little six minute ones or 12 minute ones during the early 2000s mid mornings they're done in Norfolk North Norfolk digital offices that's when the psychic Simon guy came in and I think it was the first time the two Gibbons brothers started writing with Steve Coogan but those two first series of mid morning matters are absolutely unbelievably good I love them they're ex- exceptional yeah <laughs> so that'd be my favourite show although I I, I... I still contend that the uh, last series of this time with the uh, Irish um, Alan Partridge impersonator <laughs> is the funniest thing that's been on television in years. Oh. It, you right, know the weirdest thing? <laughs> the weirdest thing about that was that when I was looking at, because uh, Steve Coogan's got a lot of Irish family. He's got a very strong mm-hmm. Irish. And he does a brilliant Irish accent as well. But uh, what was really weird about that was that the guy, that he, the Irish guy in it was at once a sort of massive sort of cartoonish while at the same time 
I could imagine immediately two different fellows have met like exactly like that without <laughs> any sort of exaggeration. It was a weird, very weird thing to look at because I felt both things at once, but it was odd. And the songs that he sang, like, <laughs> uh, come out your black and tan. And then when Sweet Sixteen, <laughs> sung by an owl lad like that, it's just so creepy. <laughs> and the men, the men behind the wire. Oh my God, a bit more rebel songs if you tried. It was very, very fun. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I think I, I, I had to rewind it because I honestly laughed for about three minutes solid, and I had to put it back and watch it again. Still, honestly, oh. it was it was the first thing in years that I was sort of excited to tell people about. Like, did did you see that? And then yeah. I would explain to them how it went. Can I think it's first time I'd done that in a long time. Oh my god! And I love the bit halfway through when he's singing. Uh, he's trying to sing, and I think the man behind the wire. <laughs> he shouts over time, and like he's in a sort of pub. Come on, Simon. <laughs> Simon doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's probably never seen this sort of pub singing in his life. Oh, man. That was, that was exceptionally funny. Yeah, geez, that was brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's funny. On Twitter the next day, normally, like an awful lot of times in Ireland, people get kind of offended if people mm. do Irish, you know, do Irish jokes. No one, as that I could see anyway, on who was Irish on Twitter, they're all just going, that is absolutely amazing. <laughs> <laughs> everyone loved it. There was no one, everyone was just like, that is absolutely amazing. I think a lot of people like me could recognize something very strange in it as well. You know? <laughs> it was a kind of genius. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. So, so we've got your favorite TV show then, I think, sorted out. That's a, yeah. a shoe-in. Favorite singers? So you can give me two singers or bands of groups. Oh, right. Oh, do, 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 do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really liked, um, oh, King Creosote, was it King Creosote, a Scottish lad. Uh, he is brilliant. I saw him a few times in Ireland. Uh, great voice. I saw him loads of times. Yeah, he was really good. But there's so many brilliant Scottish bands. Mogwai as well was another band that I really, really liked. Um when I was even outside of when I was living in Scotland, and I, I really love the film that um, Douglas Gordon did with Mogwai, and it was of Zidane over the ninety minutes, yeah. with just cameras pointed, and that was a really, really nice, nice piece of work. Um, Arab Strap, I really like them. I name it all Scottish bands here. I know um, Teenage Fan Club, another one, absolutely love them. Someone yeah. posted Grand Prix recently on Twitter, and I was like, oh Jesus, that was such a good track. But I'd say my favorite singer was probably David Bowie, to be honest. But um, Oh man, all those Scottish bands, they all came out in like a small pocket of Fife. Yeah. A lot of them came out of this. Yeah, yeah. It's just like astonishing, you know. Yeah. How does it, how did this happen, you know? <laughs> okay, favourite actors, so you can give me two favourite actors. Um, favourite actors? If, if one of them um, isn't Steve Coogan, then I'm, I'm going to have watched. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, he's, ah, like, it's so hard to disentangle him from Partridge, <laughs> you know. Um, your man... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is good crack. I like watching him. Yeah. And is a, a modern actor. Um. And then, um. Well, I mean, just even for the Big Lebowski alone, Jeff Bridges. I just absolutely love him. Mm-hmm. Um. And then Tilda Swinton. Tilda, Tilda Swinton. Swinton. This. Actress, I think she's brilliant as well. Right. Okay. Who's your best friend? That's probably when see back in Ballymahan. Uh. Then there's Fergal, a very, very good friend as well. I work with him a lot as well. 
and then there's Michael Farrell. They'd be the three main. Paulie Kern as well. Jesus. Yeah, they'd be the main three. Paulie. Miles Tyne as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that bunch, Miles. And I'm sorry, you can it's only hard have to one. pick one. I can only have ah. one. <laughs> no, no, listen, that 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 will do. That's fine. That will do. <laughs> who, who, who's who's your biggest influence? So this could how, be. How about how about how about all four of them into a snug and say they're one person? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Who, who's been your biggest influence? This could be work or um, personal. Yeah. Um, ah, my mum probably. You know. Just in terms of uh, work ethic and things like that, and just uh, yeah, like the, the idea that you have to work if you want to get somewhere. Mm. That was definitely that would have come from her very, very strongly. Was from a very young age. Uh, idea that uh, you're not like you know that's that that if you do work hard, you you know things might go well for you, but you have to work hard. And that was the kind of main key uh, that I got away that I that I learned from her. That was a very important thing as well. I'd like, like, I'd, I, I would be, a friend always says, you work too hard. Um, but I, I just see it as being that just, that's, that's just what you do. You know, you have mm. to work hard if you want to, if you want to get on and do things yourself, you know? Okay. So yeah, my mum. Nice okay. Final question. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? These are really difficult questions. <laughs> I've never considered these things before. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, that I'd love the person I'd love to meet most in the world. Um, Jesus. So uh, th- this could be someone alive or dead. Somebody. Oh right, okay. Jeez. Yeah, but then, uh, yeah, there was a writer I came across last year. She's pretty obscure. Um, she's a Belgian writer, and she wrote this lovely, this amazing book back in the early fifties called Memoirs of Hadrian, and it's about the it's about the the, the, the Emperor Hadrian and. She wrote a lot of books afterwards in her later years. She, was, she wrote in French, but they're translated into English. I remember at the time just thinking, I would love to meet her. Um, and her name is Marguerite Yorsenar. I'd never heard of her until last year, so I, I don't expect anyone else to have heard of her. But her book, Memoirs of Hadrian, is brilliant. It's, it's a novel, but it's it's absolutely... I was blown away by it. Um, so, yeah, I think I'd like her. She seemed pretty cool. <laughs> okay. Cool. Brilliant. Okay, thank you for that. I'll hand you back over to Tom. All righty, so um, stay with you for a minute, uh, Adrian. So this is your book, Midfield Dynamo, a book of short stories. Uh, and I think this is, you get asked about all the time. I think that you've you've laid them out in a football football formation. And uh, there's this wee tactical drawing you've got there at the front. <laughs> So mixing football and, and literature, did anybody tell you don't don't do it? And um, it's funny actually because I the, it, it kind of the idea came to me. So I, I, I've written the short this short years ago called Midfield Dynamo, and it was basically more or less based, you know, my 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 dad uh, who who he himself played soccer when he was younger. He played football when he was younger. And he played midfield. And by all accounts, he was a pretty good midfielder. He played for Longford Town briefly as well. Um, and so that was the first story I wrote. That was back in 2013 or so. And there's a little bit of football in that. And then um, a couple of years later, it was I was here in Berlin. And um, I was reading some uh, work by Thomas Bernhardt, who's a pretty well-known Austrian writer, um, who was originally born, he was born in the uh, Netherlands. But he writes, a lot of his books 
classical music is, the, he was a classically trained pianist and classical music goes through his books and he goes on extended rants about classical music uh, through his books. And you can tell in the rants that he's having great fun actually writing on about classical music. So when I was reading one of his books, I think it was, I think it was Wittgenstein's nephew or something like that. And I was reading it away one day and I was like, geez, he's having an awful lot of crack with this. I was like, I wonder what could I, what do I know about to the same degree that he knows about classical music? And I wonder, could I write something about in that vein? So I was like, well, I know an awful lot about football because I've been looking at it since I've been five and trying to play it since I've been five. Um, so I said to myself, why don't I try and play? Why don't, don't I try and write um, about football? So literally the afternoon I sat down and I moved from one cafe to another. And over three or so hours, I'd written a short story called Prozaneki. Um, <clears throat> and I was like, I remember when I'd written it, it came out very easily. And I was like, I think this is actually good. Um, and then I gave it to my girlfriend, Neve, and she's into football. It's not bad into football. She read it a few weeks later and she said, yeah, this, this definitely has something going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. I sent it to a couple of Irish liter literary journals. One of them was called the Dublin Review, who had published me before, a really nice literary journal. And they responded saying, well, this is about football. I mean, we're not going to publish this, you know. Um, and I was like, okay. Um, and then I sent it to another literary journal who had published me before as well. And I thought I had a good relationship with them. And they didn't even respond. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And then um, Sally Rooney and the intern, Sally Rooney, had written this short story. You know, um, Sally Rooney of Normal People and all that. Um, she had written a short story based loosely on Robbie Keane's goal against Italy in the 2016 European Championships. And it's a really, really nice short story um, that she wrote, a really, really good short story. Um, and I clocked it and I was like, Sally Rooney likes football. And then a few months, then about 2018 or so, Sally Rooney was named as the editor of another Irish literary journal called The Stinging Fly. And I said to myself, I'm going to send this into Sally Rooney because she'll actually like this. And within about, whatever, within a month or two of sending it in, she came back and she said, I love this story. Uh, we definitely want to publish it. And then she and I worked on it for about maybe oh, two or three weeks. Um, I mean, she actually is really knowledgeable about football. I mean, a lengthy conversation about how you should spell fullback. Should there be two words, should be one word, all this kind of stuff. Um, and she was really into all of this details. And then she talked about, you know, the role of the central midfielder and how their kind of position in the field, like she was kind of saying to her, there's passages in the text that are written in the way a midfielder would only write them. Like if you were a left back, you wouldn't see the, the pitch and the way you'd see it differently to a midfielder. When you're a midfielder, you, you, you don't see a lot of the pitch most of the time. Whereas if you're a right back, you see most of the pitch all the time. And we talked about these details and she was totally game and totally interested. And the conversation went over and back really well. So that's how that, so then that story got published. And then I realized then that football actually isn't so strange a thing and that it is actually welcome by certain people in literature. Um, and then if you nose around a little bit, you can see a few more instances of, of football appearing in literature. And I think it's going to appear more often, actually, in the coming years, because it is a huge cultural phenomenon. Like There's so many billions of people look at football. Mm -hmm. The idea that it doesn't appear in literature more often, to me, just doesn't make any sense. It's a blind spot. Yeah. And so that's why I decided, yeah, I'm just going to do I'm just going to pursue this in footballing terms and um, this book in footballing terms, even though all the stories aren't about football. Yeah. That didn't matter to me. I was like, I'm going to use the structure of a football team for this collection. Partly because it helped me 
so when I was putting the collection together, so there's 12 stories, so that's 11 team players and a coach. And I, I couldn't understand what order to put the stories in when I looked at them in a vertical list. So you know when you're doing a mixtape, <clears throat> there's always as many good reasons for putting one song before or after an next one. You could put, like, you know, there's always these quandaries, these problems. Um, and that was, that's the same problem I had with the collection of short stories. I didn't know which one to put before or after the next. So then what I did was, it just came to me one night, I woke up um, in the following morning and I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set them out as a football team. So then I was thinking about the stories in terms of the personality. So I was like, okay, well, mid, uh, say, let's say, for instance, design number 108, which is the first story. I was like, that's a goalkeeper. That would not be any good anywhere else on the pitch. And then I was like, half bird, half bear, which is another short story. I put that in the wing because I knew, well, there's no point putting that it would be good and just the same we wouldn't put it up front wouldn't same with trusses i was like you wouldn't play trusses up front etc et so then all of a sudden the team came together and i was like i can that's a good team i can trust this team <laughs> and then i deconstructed the 11 and just put and then i then i just started obviously they have to go into a book one after but the order is goalkeeper back four midfield up front and um, so that's how i'd use this everyday structure of a footballing 11 to help me understand how to organize the book <laughs> so, and, and, and the story that there's a couple of great bits in it I mean I, I noted down just a wee line uh, when the goal, goalkeeper's getting carried off the pitch it says prone in the stretcher he lifts his arm to the crowd who cheer as if he was a minor being lifted from a blast that's great and, and there's also there's, there's a wee bit you, you put so the midfielder in that story sort of idolised Robert Prozanecki and there's a good wee bit you, you put about how he could see the pass that had to be played and and not the stylish pass or not the pass you might want mm. to play, but what benefits, mm. what benefits, what benefits the team? Mm. I thought that was yeah, a nice observation. Yeah. That's something that fascinates me about um, passing. Um, that some passes on a football pitch are taken because they will enjoy them or because they're aesthetic or because they'll, they'll uh, arc beautifully across the pitch but they might not necessarily be the best pass at that moment. And I have a, a controversial theory about this that a lot of my friends disagree with, and I'm sure you too. But I think one of the main reasons <laughs> why Man United were so successful um, at around the time when, let's say, Liverpool weren't as successful, I think part of the reason is that Man United's midfield too, even though Scholes was well able to hit that 40-yard diagonal ball, but that the habit for the two midfielders was to, they were like boxers who jabbed. They were like boxers who jabbed past those lines between the midfield and the back four, constantly hitting the ball into feet, into Ruud van Nistelrooy or later Wayne Rooney or whoever, and they were getting on the turn. If you do that over 90 minutes, you're going to wear a team down. And if that's the pass that you always go for, that kind of psychotic jab all the time, or most often, you're going to wear a team down. Whereas if you decide more often to, hit, to spray this ball in a beautiful kind of arc where the defending team can effectively recollect, um, you're losing an advantage. And over the course of a game and over the course of a whole season, that produces differences in points. Um, so my view is that because United had a more psychotic and less sort of, they were less concerned about the aesthetics of it in midfield, I think that's why they were more successful as a, as a team in terms of winning leagues compared to, like, say, like Liverpool or that kind of team. Um, 
some people disagree with me, but I think it's, I think it's a very good theory. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Andy, can so, we then have a wee look at that Yugoslavian team that we were talking about earlier on? Wow. Can you see that, uh, Adrian? So, so this this is also from Match Magazine, but it's from June, so it's it's probably just before the World Cup. Or, um, but yeah, it's in there. It says the the Yugoslavia squad is packed with talent and players like Dragan Stojkovic. Robert Prozineke and uh, veteran Safet Susic, um, who would be formidable members of any international side. So yeah, yeah, some players in there. Yeah, and like the 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 thing was, um, I don't think Prozineke is in that itself actually. But um, I when after that, after the the or once the Balkan Wars started, and that's all that, um, particularly the Red Star Belgrade team broke up, all of those players went off to other European <coughs> teams in France and Italy and, um, and Spain and it must have been so strange to have come from a team that was so successful at club level to all of a sudden in each other just gone completely, the team, the club the whole country obliterated it must have been, it must have been an extremely strange experience but um, the brand of football that they played was just I remember I was just when I was that age. You just hear you'd hear about it in European football nights. Like I remember vaguely remember the the uh, the Bell Red State team uh, beating Rangers, and then they beat Red um, Bayern Munich. And I just remember getting glimpses because that's because there was no YouTube. You know, mm-hmm. you were just getting glimpses on TV, uh, like the newspaper on the, on the news, glimpses of these kind of extreme exotic sounding footballers playing this kind of really not a high stuff football where the kind of midfield virtuoso was central to it, you know. Um, yeah, they were, I don't know, they were just such a kind of a mythical bunch, the Red Star of Belgrade, and by extension, the the, the Yugoslavian team. Um, I think Prozanecki ended up playing with Croatia um, mm-hmm. after the break, after the break, break of, of Yugoslavia. Um, and he had a very good World Cup in 98, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, and just doing a wee bit of re- reading about him, apparently he smoked all the way through his mm. playing career. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he was born in actually Germany, and um, hey. on a he was born to a, uh, I think it was a military, you know, military camp. Like I think his father or his mother were in the army or something. Like I think he's fluent in German as well. Uh. Um, and I think he, when he was playing, he was going to his, he went for trials to Red Star Belgrade or something like that. And they were like, yeah, yeah, no, you're not, you're not good enough. And I think the father kind of stepped in and said, "You're making an awful mistake not taking this fellow on." And they ended up reversing their their, their decision or something, much to their, I'm sure, joy, because he turned out to be a really important uh, player for that team. Um, and there was Vicevic who played up front, who went on and played in Italy, and he was he had an absolutely brilliant career as well. The funny thing about Eki was that he ended up going over to Barcelona, then he got injured. And then I think he went to Real Sociedad, and then he went to Madrid. Mm-hmm. So he's like one of those few players that have actually gone from Barcelona or Madrid. But I think his injuries were just constantly coming on him. He never really imposed himself in in Spain. But then he popped up again in the I think it was the late nineties, early two thousands in Portsmouth. I don't know. Do you remember that when he played briefly in the either the Championship or the Premier League? And he was absolutely, yeah, yeah absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think Harry, it was Harry Net I can't remember. But he was so good. And this was, he was at the end of his career now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was stupendously good. 
But um, I ended up going down last year, just before the lockdown and before all the COVID stuff. I was working on a, a, a film project and I wanted to go and record the shouts at football games. Um, and I wanted to, to, to film that sort of, um, yeah. And I, I wanted to particularly have Portsmouth's uh, singing. So I ended up going to Lincoln, to a Lincoln City versus Portsmouth game up in Lincoln. And then traveling all the way down to England, this following, all the way down to Portsmouth the following Saturday to, to record just audio, just singing um, at the Portsmouth Sunderland game in Fratton Park and um, it was really interesting because Fratton Park is one of those old stadiums from the early 1900s they were designed by that the Archibald Leach fellow mm-hmm. the guy who designed um, the um, Rangers in Villa Park and uh, the McLeod, yeah the McLeod um, end in, uh, in in Hearts um, and that Fratton Park is absolutely beautiful old stadium but the sound in it is quite different to the kind of the newer stadium you know those older stadiums they have noise totally differently to the newer ones, you know. And there's something I don't know exactly what it is, but it's it's definitely a strange, different experience. I'd love to go to Goodison as well and sit in the old stand there and just see what the sound in there because there's definitely something different on, you know. Like I mentioned earlier on, the difference between the Aviva Stadium and the uh, the old Lansdowne Road. I think it's something like that as well. Those old structures are just fascinating, you know. Yeah, well, again, it's the same here, you know, with the, with the Hamden Roar. You know, yeah, very rare you get that here. You know, yeah. um, uh, at Scotland games nowadays, but I think it was just sort of standard uh, yeah. back when it was back when it was old terracing. Yeah, I used to go to to a lot of heart. I lived in Edinburgh for a couple of years, and I used to go to the Hearts games because uh, I lived I lived in Shandon, and um, I used to go. It was when um, who was the really the Russian dude had taken over. Hey. And Mike, I was at Burley. What's his name? The the Burley was the manager. Yeah, George Burley. George Burley. Bur- is it Burley or Burnley? Burley. 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 Yeah. Burnley. He was the manager. I remember Hearts were top of the league coming into Christmas, mm-hmm. and um, geez, the atmosphere around around uh, around Shandon was absolutely electric. And going to those games on a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon was just brilliant. Like especially when Rangers came through or anything like that. Geez, the the crack. Like there was a real real buzz in the air, you know, because Hearts were kind. Of, they were being taken quite seriously because they were doing brilliantly. Really good team as well at the time. Yeah, that was brilliant crack, actually. Yeah. So we're just going to look at a Hearts uh, team group uh, now when yeah. we get back into the back into the magazine. Uh, so this is uh, the Hearts team from 1989-90 season. Uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to pick out from from the area Adrian, that you've you've spotted or oh, any haircuts. No. Or... Well, I can see some haircuts. All right. See, it's funny because part of the reason I went to college was because of the success that Aberdeen had in European football. And even though it was like you were just getting the names, when you're so young making these decisions, you're based on such kind of arbitrary things. Um, but I see the uh, I can see the lovely old uh, the lovely old stand there in in Hearts. Is that still there? That stand, that stand in behind them. See, to be honest. I don't think there's. I don't think there's any more the old stand there now. I think it's all new stuff. Is not okay. Yeah. So you've. I remember being the the in hearts in being really small, like the actual box, being really close to the sideline, and that like it was kind of it wasn't. It always seemed to me like a pitch that was, um, very close to being sort of 
below standard in size. I had a bit of a tilt on it as well. I'd say it was a tough ground to come to for away for um, away teams who weren't used to that kind of tightness. And when the noise built up as well in there in the in the early was it 2002 or so 2003, geez, it gets an almighty atmosphere uh, uh, banging around it, you know. But I wouldn't say in the late 80s I wouldn't have been. I don't think I would have been taking a huge amount of notice of arts, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got the Irish national hero Gary Mackay. Is in there. <laughs> <laughs> scored the, the winner against for Scotland against Bulgaria that sent uh, Ireland that's, through. Yeah. That's that sent us to eighty eight. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he scored the most important Irish goal probably of all time. I mean, that's essentially <laughs> what kind of kickstarted the game in Ireland. You know, uh, John McKay's goal. I think whenever he goes to Ireland and if the, if a discerning fan spots him, he gets a, he always gets a pint ball from him. Like he's never. <laughs> He's never left drive. If there's any kind of meetings up, so I think he's always involved in them as well. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great wee, uh, thing that when you, you get somebody like that who's who's a kind of hero for a, like, a team he's really no connection yeah. with, yeah. kind of thing. You know, it's it, it's great that that you know yeah. fans. I'll, I'll sort of remember guys like that who've scored the goal that sent their team through, even though he wasn't actually playing for their team. That's it. Yeah. No, you do, and like the thing is that the details of it because now everything is so immediate. The actual details of it or what the goal looked like, you mightn't have seen it for another year later. <laughs> like I had this experience, this is a really funny one actually. Um, when I was when I was getting that World Cup 90 poster, I remember looking at the art, they, they had this golden goals section. And one of the golden goals was Archie Gemmel's goal against um, Holland, which oh. of course like one of the greatest goals of all time. And I'm not saying that just because you're Scottish. <laughs> um but I don't know if it was his balding head or what it was that made it so brilliant, but it was brilliant. Anyway, um, I remember when I when I was looking at that in the World Cup 90 book or the little manual, whatever you call it, the little uh, uh, weekly booklet. And it was like a series of illustrations sort of showing in freeze frame how he went around these Dutch defenders. And you couldn't read, you could kind of go, yeah, I kind of get that. But YouTube wasn't available. So you couldn't just type in Archie Gemmel goal yeah. you had to you were like denied the view of it and it wasn't until years later i'd moved to scotland i was living in aberdeen um and i think i was in third year in college maybe second year whenever train spotting came <laughs> you know, the film with the you and mcgregor and what have you i remember that came out and it was just like oh a film and i remember when i was watching the film you know the sex scene and you yeah. mcgregor is getting on with kelly mcdonald and the other guy is getting on with his girlfriend and Ewan or Rent Boy, I think it's Rent Boy, has swapped their sex tape out for <laughs> Scottish Great Goals tape. <laughs> and the two tapes are on at the same time. It's an amazing part of the film where they're going over and back between the two uh, couples making out or actually getting it on. And in between the flickers between the, the couples getting it on, you see Archie Gemmell's goal. <laughs> I remember in the middle of all of this kind of, uh, kind of fervor and lovemaking, I remember thinking to myself, ah, that's what the Archie Gamble goal looked like. Because <laughs> I had never seen it being played in it, because it would never be on an Irish TV. Yeah, yeah. And that was, and I was, ah, that's what it looked like. So that scene has got a very special part, <laughs> place in my heart, simply because of the, uh, it brought me these still images that I'd seen about six years previous in a, in, in a World Cup 1990. <laughs> At the uh, at the Scottish Football Museum at Hamden, that you can walk through the goal. They've got like, oh. man, uh, Dutch mannequins 
the, the players sort of fallen over kind of thing and they've got a wee sort of dotted path that you can sort of walk around but Archie Gamble where we went. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. I love it. <laughs> I don't know what goal Ireland would take for that. It might be maybe one of Ray Houghton's, maybe Ray Houghton's header against uh, well, Ray, well, of course, goal against Italy. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a good one. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think we have any of those mazy dribbles. Maybe maybe one of uh, Aidan McGeady's goals, maybe we could pull them out, but uh, they weren't maybe just quite as important as that one. <laughs> uh, so Andy, if you get MD to pull out of that Hearts, that Hearts team? Well, I'm just going to point out the assistant manager on the left-hand side, Walter Bothwick, who, who died sadly this year in April. So just... Uh, you know, pointing out him there um, about the kit. The we have discussed this before, but the the kit maker is actually Buckter. It's a very unusual. It's not what you would associate mm-hmm. the Buckter badge as being, because um, you know you would you would think of the the Hibs kit from the the eighties. You know, the one that George Best wore with they had the the Buckter across it. But it's 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 a different logo that Buckter had then. Um, Thorn, Thorn Security as a sponsor as well, but yeah, I mean, there's there's you know Alan McLaren, there's Craig Levine in there as well, um, yeah. you know, there's Dave McPherson, John Robertson, John Colquhoun. I mean, it's loads of really really well known um, Hearts players, Scottish players in uh, in general. Yeah, um, yeah Tosh McKinley as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eamon Bannon, who's you know that famous for the get banning off um, <laughs> thing, but yeah, yeah, some great, great names in there. Did Tosh McKinley? He played for Celtic, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. did. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, neat kind of uh, right back, wasn't he? Or something? Yeah, right yeah, yeah. I remember him. Yeah, good player. Jeez, he's young there. Big head of hair now. God. Hey, yeah, right. So we turn the page then. So another team group. We've got a Norwich City team group here. What what do you think of that? Uh, those rows, Andy. So, uh, three rows. A yeah. wee bit haphazard, kneeling at the front. Yeah, but we've got the front sat on a bench. Apart from the last ones on either side who are crouching, one of them doesn't look too happy about it either. And, <laughs> and um, probably got the tallest guy in the entire team sitting crouching in the front front row as well. Um, so Malcolm Allen, second one from the left. It just doesn't look as though he should be. He should be standing at the back row, probably. Um, <laughs> it's it's not the worst, you know. The, the, there's symmetry there. The, they've sorted out with the goalkeepers. They've got player keeper, player keeper, and certainly in the middle row. There's a there's a curved here. Um, see, I, I, I like to Adrian. I like to look at these things and you know have a have a look about how how they've actually set up the team photos because I think. You know, I like to see when they've put the effort in because it is a snapshot in time that, you know, it's going to be up on people, you know, supporters' walls and, and they're going to think of that period by this yeah. team photo. So I think it's important that they, they made the effort. I mean, sometimes you see players who are too small behind like a goalkeeper. So all you can do is see the top of that. I mean, to be honest, it's nearly the case with Andy Townsend. That you're only you know quite a bit. Of his chin is missing. Oh jeez, yeah, missed him there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that's right. But overall, I don't think it's certainly not the worst. Certainly not the worst, Tom. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so a decent uh, strip, uh, Isaac's uh, strip there with the uh, 
the the uh, stripes diagonally across sort of quarter of the shirt. That's quite a smart looking shirt. And uh, some of the names in the team there: Brian Gunn, goalkeeper; Dale Gordon, who do we spell at Rangers? Mm. Uh, Andy Townsend, as we mentioned, Tim Sherwood, mm. we spiky blonde haircut at the time. Oh, uh, Jeremy Goss, yep. he did spell at Hearts, didn't he? Robert Fleck, he was a very, very good player. Robert Fleck, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, Rule Fox, he was Rule excellent Fox, as well. Yeah. Brilliant yeah. Player. yeah. And the, 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 normally they do an inset for these ones. They say, not in picture, Henrik Mortensen from our house. Yeah. Um, normally they would have like a, in this case, judging by the rest of the magazine, they'd probably put a black and white photograph of them <laughs> as an inset one. Uh, but it's, it's strange that they've, they've included them in the list without actually including a photograph. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's unusual. Uh, all right, so I think uh, the time's getting time's getting on a wee bit. So if we could we jump on to the the letters, uh, the letters page, uh, the match mailbag. Shoot, would sort of headline the letters, but the, no, the only the only the star letters headlined here. The, the the main letter here, star letter, is ban is unfair, and it's a letter from Jay Simpson of Rochdale. I'm writing to say that the banning clubs in Europe is now getting to be a big joke. Uh, you only have to look around the continent to see the trouble, but FIFA just turn a blind eye and ignore them. But if the English fans are involved, they kick up a big fuss and they think about doubling the ban. When Liverpool were banned from Europe, why weren't Juventus? I think they might be hiding the fact that when we get into Europe, we always succeed in bringing back a trophy, showing our dominance of world-class football today. So come on, FIFA, lift the ban today. It will be the best result in foreign soil for years. And uh, Matches reply is, good point. England seemed to be made the scapegoat for a European problem. So yes, this is sort of four years into the the ban on English clubs at this at this point. I think um, the the response to that is a little disappointing. Mm. You know, it's like you know, England. I think I think there's also a lot of what about it going on in the actual letter itself. You know, rather than focusing on you know why England were in this position, that they're looking at well, what about what about Juventus? Why didn't they get banned? And it's like it's just a bit of what about it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the picture there of Graham Soonis and there's a letter there Mark Griffiths from Ellesmere Port South World who do Rangers think they are <laughs> over a £10 million team you would have thought they would play well or do well Graham Soonis hasn't a clue for instance buying Ray Wilkins what a mistake a few years ago he was at his peak but now he's past it I'm not picking just on Ray but some of the ridiculous prices he pays Trevor Stephen is one of them I mean £2 million is silly even though he is a talented player I think Sunis needs to sort out his team before he sinks. And Match responds by saying it's early days yet. <laughs> he, could, he, he could have picked, well, he probably couldn't have picked two worse players to, to criticise mm. as well, you know, Ray Wilkins and, and Trevor Stephen. So, yeah, I think, who's it, Mark Griffiths? I think he's got that way wrong. No, as it was Trevor, <laughs> Trevor Stephen would only win seven league titles with Rangers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. <laughs> And there's a wee bit there about, about John Aldridge. Uh, Anthony Spooner of Berwick says, I wonder whether John Aldridge would be a success abroad or whether he will suffer the same fate as Ian Rush. Some ways I hope he fails because then he could come back and play for Liverpool again, just like Rushy did. Since he left, we don't have a class forward on the subs bench. So what happens if Barnes, Beardley or Rush get injured? And the reply is, you bring on Steve Staunton and he's going to have Staunton, pretty prolific uh, goal scorer for a left-back. Yeah. Um, when he was when he was at Liverpool, just he had a great season. Uh, it's a pity his 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 um, uh, 
his managerial his his period as a manager at Ireland really kind of tainted his his uh, his relationship with the fans. Yeah, it was so disastrous, and uh, <clears throat> he he wasn't kind of uh, didn't seem in any way apologetic about some of the results that we were coming in. That really turned fans against him, who would have really 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 admired him for his playing career. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of a shame. That that, ha- that that happened because he was, I mean, he was a brilliant player as well. Um, but also, soon after that, I think uh, didn't uh, Aldridge went to Real Sociedad? Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember actually, there's a really funny moment in the in that World Cup, the road to the USA in '94. I think Aldridge was in, he'd been in Sociedad for a couple of seasons. And at the end of the game, he's been interviewed by the Spanish t- uh, press <laughs> and he's speaking in Spanish to the Spanish reporters, but you can tell that he's speaking in the most Scouse accent. <laughs> but as I walk in the Spanish language, it's really, really funny. <laughs> he did well, though, at Sociedad. He did well uh, pretty much everywhere. Aldridge, yeah. He did, yeah. We look at his record. He was a terrific goal scorer, uh, John Aldridge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he really was. I think he came back to Tranmere Rovers, he came back, he came back mm. to. Yeah. Uh, all right, move over the move over the page then as we rattle through. So again, that's uh, another another film advert again in black and white, another <laughs> black and white poster, uh, gleaming the cube. Um, it sounds like a euphemism, that doesn't it? Gleaming the cube. I don't, I don't know what a euphemism for, but well, it, it had it had alternative titles, also known as a brother's justice and skate or die. Oh, a 1989 American neo-noir film directed by Graham Clifford and starring Christine Slater is Brian Kelly, a 16-year-old skateboarder investigating the death of his adopted Vietnamese brother. Is this like a random a random storyline generator that's just put something together? <laughs> and, uh, it currently holds 29% on, on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh my God. It's better it's, than the other one. I can't imagine. Might have to watch that on YouTube tonight. <laughs> and at the bottom there, there's a wee advert for the the the, uh, the army there at the bottom going in. Silly not to the professionals. Uh, it's all about um, well, basically, kids peering in the window of the army recruitment. Uh, it's amazing how many people think they know all about the army without ever asking someone who's actually in it. That's why we set up army careers information offices all over the UK. Yeah, so I'm saying we've seen this kind of before uh, adverts for the the, the, uh, the armed forces or the police as well in these mm-hmm. these kind of magazines. I mean, to, you'd imagine the the audience is is going to have quite a lot of people in there who they are trying to target, aren't they? isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. imagine there would be quite a, a few people interested in that. Yeah. So we're going over the page. This is the Skull Cup preview. Hamden Hitmen. So it's Aberdeen against Rangers. It seemed as if the Skull Cup final was just a sort of groundhog day. Aberdeen v Rangers every season. Everything <laughs> uh, about that, you know. Uh, and the vast, uh, a former Aberdeen player and a former Rangers player to rate the teams. Billy Stark of Celtic says third time lucky dons. And uh, Nicky Walker of Motherwell says fired up Rangers. And it's a picture there of uh, Jim Bett. Of Aberdeen and Richard Goff of Rangers. Did, did you go to see Aberdeen much when you were at, at university there? Agent? I went. To, I went a couple of times down to Pitadri. Yeah, and the thing was that because I was um, I was playing with the university a lot. So every Wednesday and every Saturday afternoon, I'd be playing um, either the local leagues or the university leagues. And because most of the games are on at that, that those kind of days. Um, I missed an awful lot of the games, but I went mm. to a few games. I remember Russell Anderson was playing for them, and right. um, um, but the train in the park, 
just down near me in I think it was Don the Don park called the Don Park or something like that. And I used to see them, the team out there training sometimes on the in the middle of the park. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting because I'd never seen a professional football team of this kind before, right. and it was pretty fascinating for me to watch them uh, just do going through their going through their their exercise and what have you. And I always noted, particularly if it was early in the in the in the season, how tanned they all were <laughs> <laughs> because they'd obviously been uh, away on holidays for a good bit of the summer. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, they were. I remember it was a good vi- good buzz down at the uh, Aberdeen games. I remember I went to a, a Rangers game, and Jesus, the atmosphere was pretty poisonous. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. was, uh, I was taken aback by how. Um, yeah, the kind of the, the 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 vitriol between the two the two sets of supporters. Um, I didn't because I, I I wouldn't have understood necessarily the history between the two of them, you know. Um, but I learned it pretty quickly, and I was like, <laughs> that is that is pretty pretty like it's it was there was like a real proper kind of dislike for each other. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that 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 existed as much in Scotland. So, like say, obviously Celtic and Rangers, and I knew about obviously um Hibs and, and Hearts. Um but I hadn't didn't know about that that sub the undercurrent between Aberdeen yeah. and Rangers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, usually the, these ones are, are kind of worse where it's where it's built up over a particular incident or something. Yeah. Rather, yeah. I mean Celtic and Rangers is just pretty much handed down yeah, father to exactly. son for the you know, hatred kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, Hearts Hibs obviously very lo- local on well, the same sort of yeah. uh, community kind of thing. But uh, Aberdeen Rangers had, had a had a sort of horrible incident at the, yeah. at, the at the centre of it that kind of grew and uh, that grew outwards over the over the yeah. years. Yeah. Um yeah it just became a stick for either of them to beat each other with each time. It just <laughs> yeah. yeah. We used to go to a pub actually after our football games up in the up in the north side of the city, and uh, Miller owned the pub actually. So we met Willie Miller, was a nice old chap. Um, but he would have been a huge star in Aberdeen, but like, he oh, would yeah. be a famous man in Aberdeen, even at that time in the mid 90s. I think he was retired a couple of years by then. I think um, he, I think he's considered yeah. the greatest, greatest dawn, isn't he? Willie Miller, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I uh, so there's just there's, there's uh, we ratings of the, the players there. Uh, Chella Nicholas, a marvelous player who loves a big stage. Has had some problems hitting the target this season, but someday soon, some club is sure to suffer. Rangers beware, rating nine. And uh, Paul Mason, a bit of an unknown quantity, but he has fitted in well at Pataudry, so he can't be bad, rating seven. And uh, spoiler alert, this was the final where Aberdeen won. Um, Paul Mason scored both the goals. Aberdeen won 2-1 after extra time. Uh, Mark Walters scored for Rangers. Uh, Paul Mason scored 22 minutes and the winner in 103 minutes. Just yeah. the Skull Cup was that was that essentially the League Cup at yeah, the time? Yeah, it was. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So there was there was two trophies. So there was obviously the traditional League Cup, and then there was a, a special Skull Cup trophy yeah. as well. But, and yeah. Skull Skull was the drink, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah. The, yeah, the lager. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's yeah, yeah. Back to me now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was there was quite a few finals between Aberdeen, Aberdeen and Rangers over the years, and they were usually they were usually quite entertaining games. Uh, and this this is one of the few ones that uh, Aberdeen managed to win. Uh, all right, if we just uh, jump on to the next page, so it's match superstore. Adrian, have, have you picked out anything from these adverts? <laughs> you seen? Oh yes, I did. I saw something brilliant in here. Oh yeah, it was the uh, serious collectors. Yeah, a service designed especially for the club collector. A computer list of your club's home and aways. We currently hold a stock of forty six thousand different items. <laughs> Uh, we hold large stocks of every league club, including many Scottish, Irish, and non-league, enclosing 30p in stamps 
or an international reply coupon. And I was like, my God, who, who would look for something like that? <laughs> it's funny, these kind of, these little adverts, like you kind of, when you don't buy newspapers, you feel like it's a part of my life that's disappeared. It's almost like the, uh, you know, the kind of the, the socials you get where man, you know, uh, lonely, handsome man looking for a woman or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, that one caught my eye. It was just so, so strange. Um, There's a wee one there under collector's fairs. It says World Football Annual 8990, 950 pages, an Italian book, but with 90% statistics. Super. Send sixteen pounds by check and as a, a, an address in Luxembourg. <laughs> You're selling that, aren't they? Uh, again, like you were saying earlier on, uh, it's just statistics. You know, it's ninety yeah, percent yeah. statistics. Yeah, it's so crazy. I don't know why it's such a strange. Um, it's such a strange impulse, isn't it? In in football fans, this this sort of. Uh, this desire to kind of look at over these tables of, of numbers. Because I'd say someone who isn't interested in football, they really must just wonder what on earth people are seeing in it. I think it's, the, I, I, part, part, of it, part of me thinks it's just a desire to kind of make pattern out of, to make a pattern out of, uh, out of all of this stuff, you know? Mm. And a table is just the best way to put it all there mm. at once, you know? Um, or at least, at least it was the best way to do it. But it's, um, yeah, it's something that's, it just mystifies me, you know, why it, so many fans are just drawn to that form of making sense of 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 of, of the story of, of a season, you know. Yeah. Tom, the was this the year that Man City had that craze about the blow, the the blow up? Inflatables, of, yeah. I was just going to mention that. Yeah, yeah okay. there's going to be Android equipment, football inflatables, banana skeletons, etc. From ninety nine p. Please send SAE for top one hundred list. Yeah, it's like there's there's no correlation between football and bananas and skeletons, is there? Well, when I was watching that, like I was saying earlier on, I was watching uh, on YouTube that Republic of Ireland Northern Ireland game. Yeah, and bought a few inflatables right. in that, yeah. bananas and skeletons. Yeah, there was uh, there, there was one supporter. I think he was from Cork, and I think he went to a lot of away games. And he was always the fellow there with the big banana. <laughs> and he went like you could look at World Cup footage and all the rest, and he was just there with a banana. And it wasn't like I think he was just. I think he just liked having this very incongruent object in the middle of a football pitch. Like I made the scarves and all this other football related stuff and just a big yellow banana in the middle of it. But yeah, it was definitely part of the kind of, definitely the 80s and 90s yeah, yeah. Uh, traveling supporter uh, thing. There was some dude in there with a banana all the time. <laughs> I don't know who it was, but yeah, it's definitely, it, it's not just something that caught your eye. It happened a lot. <laughs> yeah. Pat Nevin mentions it in his, in his new book. He suggests that that was kind of, um, it helped stop the football violence. Because people were carrying these big stupid inflatables kind of yeah. thing. And there was yeah. more of an era of fun about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very good point because, I mean, you're not going to beat up someone holding <laughs> a <laughs> <little> banana. <laughs> you know? And just across from that, there's a wee thing that says, um, there's two wee personal, and one is how to chat up girls, and there's an 0898 phone number, and the one below that is how to unlock your hidden powers. And again, an 0898 phone number. My God. Uh, anything you spotted there, Andy? No, you've picked out the ones that I've, I was looking at, so yeah. especially those two have taken the numbers. <laughs> uh, quite an odd collection of different of different things there. Yeah. Should all, do? All, right, all right, then, so we're coming sort of quite close to the end of the, the magazine. Uh, move over. A good picture there of Pat Jennings and Billy Bingham. Yep. 
Northern Ireland goalkeeper and, and manager. Yeah. Jennings was a great keeper, all right. Uh, great cup. He had a great, great World Cup in 86 for yeah. Jesus, superb footballer, yeah. Yeah. And uh, of course, there's World of Soccer, so just be bits and pieces uh, of results. And, that, and this would be a sort of fellow European football kind of thing, this page in match, who was top of the league in Italy, etc. Yeah. I see Atletico are top of the league there in Spain. Yeah. <laughs> very mirroring the present day. Uh, and and uh, just unfortunately for Scotland, Costa Rica finally qualifying for the first ever World Cup finals <laughs> after a nail-biting wait. Uh, the sixth country to qualify for next year's tournament, Costa Rica, actually finished their qualifying programme in July, but had to wait for the outcome of the remaining matches in their group. A goalless draw between Guatemala and the United States earlier this month finally meant Costa Rica could not be overtaken. And uh, of course, they beat Scotland in the opening game in the 1990. I do remember that. Yeah, oh. Jesus. They actually qualified out of that out of that group as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I, I quite a quite a shock to us uh, at the time because obviously we had no idea if they were any good or not, and we we expected a comfortable victory. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that was a shock on our right. Yeah, Jesus. And was that? Scotland had had by then still they were struggling to get out of group stages in World Cups and major tournaments by then. Yeah, we've never got out of group stage. No, is that still the case? Yeah, it's still the case. Yeah, we've never got anything. Oh out my god, Jesus, I have to change. I noticed the Roy in the next page. There's the gloves. Yeah, I see Hans Van Broeklen. Uh, he's got his the set of gloves there. He was playing in uh, Holland hmm. uh, when Niall Quinn scored that goal against him in the, in the I think the 78th minute. Yeah. Um, which I talked about earlier on in, the, in when we were chatting and how the last 12 minutes of that game was just a complete farce because no one, <laughs> neither of us needed to win and it was just Hans Van, Van Broeklen booting it up to uh, Packy Bonner and back. So it's nice to see his gloves again because they were gloves. He let drop essentially a long ball and it fell, span into the into Niall Quinn's uh, path and that's how he scored. So it's good to see the gloves that handed us the goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of uh, gloves there and... Uh, Names of the goalkeepers, I guess, who wore them at the time. Ian Andrews, Panther. David Seaman, Superflex. Uh, David Seaman, Personal. Dave Besant, Personal. Billy Thompson, Brian Gunn, Chris Woods. Uh, and there's other wee uh, goalkeeper jerseys and a goalkeeper cap. Pro Pants and Long Johns. The cap, the, the, see, I'm, I'm, I never got the caps. I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I was a goalkeeper. And any time I wore a cap, as soon as the action came towards my goal, I'd throw, I'd take the cap off and throw it away. So it was absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, I know why it's there is to keep the sun out, but it just, for me, it just wasted. You know, it messed about with your peripheral vision and things like that, and I was never comfortable doing it. So as soon as, as soon yeah. as the ball got anywhere near the penalty box, it boom, throwing it away. Waste. Very 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 rare these days, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, nice! So that's has got to the end of the magazine then. Excellent. So, so what what's happening with yourself at the moment? Well, uh, the the collection short stories um, uh, are out and about, and hopefully people are buying them. What have you? Um, and I'm working then on a novel that's due out next year mm-hmm. in Ireland and in the UK. Um, and the book I wrote last year was shortlisted for a book prize, um, and the winner will be announced. Uh, Saturday week or no no uh, on the 2nd of June and it's a 15,000 euro prize for the winner so obviously 
I dearly hope I've won it. Fingers crossed. Yeah. See. I got shortlisted anyway, so it was nice to get shortlisted at least. So that's the kind of main stuff. I'm taking a few weeks off at the moment now because I just sent last, my last book to, or the last edit to my editor in Ireland. So I'm just going to take a few weeks off. I've been, I've been working pretty hard of late. So yeah, time to recharge, as they say. So it was nice chatting to you two lads. Yeah, it's nice absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Good. But yeah, as Tom says, I just want to thank you. It's been really, really enjoyable. So thank you for taking your time out and going through the magazine with us. Not at all. My pleasure. My pleasure. Lovely, lovely chatting to you. And sure, hope we might meet someday. In person yeah, it's well. brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. Appreciate your time. Super, super. Thank you both as well. Cheers. Take right. care. Cheers. Very best with your projects. See you now. The charity partner this season is the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoot tb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer, Diane Jarden, for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk, where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. And I'd like to say thank you to Tom for being Tom. Thank you, Andy. And thanks to everyone for listening. And please, as always, follow the podcast, share it with your friends, get involved. Until the next time, let's shoot the breeze.